makes my day brighter than talking about elderly enemas. No, not for no. you, Tucson. No, hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wrong. <laughs> I had to scrub that movie out of my eyes. It was so bad. God, it was. I've never been that offended by that movie. Oh, I've seen Atlas Shrugged, and that was less offensive than that film. Really? Yes. Yeah. I did not watch the Atlas Shrugged sequel, but I did see part one. Was the guy who did the enema the same as the guy who peed on the girl? Because <laughs> at least that's a little character. We didn't want to shock you guys with our enema talk. Sorry about that. I went a little far. <laughs> and uh, yes, Toussaint, I do think the uh, the guy that gave the enema to the dude was mm -hmm. the pee guy. That is a little character development. Um, that was the most character development that film had. Yes. They're uh, like, we. I, I bet the enema guy was different. They're like, no, no, no. We got to keep it consistent. And we have to name him after a country. Good idea. Yeah. So, so when they were talking about Brazil, his I missed that whole plot line. I'm glad we had dedicated watchers with us that uh, could explain that uh, plot twist. It was a very strange way to express a subplot, I thought. <laughs> Well, that being said, good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good <laughs> evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I am Jason Miles. The voice you are hearing is producer of the show, chat moderator extraordinaire, M. Toussaint. Oh, sorry about getting so blue earlier. We're talking about movie night. Yes. Yes. But we are here for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe. If you're enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notifications bell as we're constantly adding new episodes and doing cross streams with other channels. We've recently added a few new features. We have Nailing It Down, a history show with Gene and Varn. The Red Zone is coming back, as well as more pop life. 
booking some very interesting guests. I'm kind of, I don't want to say anything. They're going to be some fun, fun shows. Uh, we are busy in the TIR universe. Uh, also, keep your eye out for a new short video essay as the work continues on the feature length kayfabe. Uh, I still got to create, so there's going to be some shorter ones coming out before we drop the big one, which will not be on YouTube, actually. Ooh. We're actually going to do screenings. <laughs> We're going to be doing some traveling screenings uh, all over. We have some planning, some light planning we've done so far for the spring for the West Coast and hopefully taking it out throughout the country. Um, it's just an excuse for me to tour again. <laughs> Sands the band. Uh, also, as Toussaint and I are talking, last night we did our first ever double feature movie night. It, it was hilarious, and I was able to record the first half. Uh, we watched my new favorite a movie from the early 70s, Willie Dynamite. Mm-hmm. We concluded the night with what I can only call birth of a nation for the post-racial generation. Life is hot in Cracktown. Yeah. The, the beautiful and talented Shannon Sussman could not save that film. She was just okay. <laughs> You guys were making a big deal about her. I think it was just me. You knew her name. It was, hey, it wasn't you guys. It was literally just me. It was literally just you. A man who doesn't not look like Willie. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Dynamite. Willie Dynamite. Yep. You did some great me. stunts. You did some great stunts. Uh, you don't not Willie look Dynamite. alike. First of all, Willie Dynamite had the best worst fight scenes I've ever seen in the movie. Yeah. And, and whoever did the wardrobe. Exquisite. It, the hat at the bank. It looked like a spoof. <laughs> it looked like a Pope hat. <laughs> so it looked like Shahar Ali hat. <laughs> if you'd like to see or hear these movie nights in champagne rooms and sound off in the call-in segments, there's only one way. You have to become a patron for as little as $2 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to the champagne rooms past and present. Hang out with us for movie nights. Also, you can be part of the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert live. Now, the headless, faceless voice of reason is going to do the TIR merch pitch. Pitch merch. TIR pitch merch. Do you have do we have the visuals up? You have to have the visuals up. I'm sorry because I have copy now. Oh my goodness. Here. Jesus, one promotion and this is what happens. Oh lord. This dude. Give a woman a little bit of power and they all think they're Oprah. Yo, what are you going to wear when it's brick outside with a westerly wind? Some type of flimsy t-shirt? You wildin', son. Buy a t-shirt merch hoodie from TIR or a pullover. That's what you're going to do. While you're at it, you're going to grab a mug for a toasty winter beverage. That's what you're going to do. Word. 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 Word is bond, son. We coming for you, yeah. nigga. Just know that. And we got snapbacks. 
And we got Instagram. Follow us. Word. Word. Also, we have the Give them an argument. Give, an argument. Give a revolution live show. We're bringing the party to New York January 22nd at the Cutting Room. Wherever you are watching or listening to this show, there will be links in the description. As this is the last time we pitch this as next week, Ben and I will be taking off for New York, New York. Did you like that? Did you think I was going to sing it? That was just okay. <clears throat> I didn't I didn't give you the full Yeah, you had to trash my Mitch Perch. So that's what you get. You mean your merch pitch? There we go. Speaking of merch, here's everyone's favorite lovable uh Marxist. Mm-hmm. He is my homie, my dog, my co-host extraordinaire. Always smiling. We get so many messages about, can you please stop Pascal from smiling? For real. Yeah. Please welcome the Pascal Robert. <laughs> ah, he's smiling. Smile all the time. I laugh all the time. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Shout out to some Black Alliance from Peace Comrades I see in the chats. Erica Ryan, what's going on? I hope you had a good trip in Nicaragua. Shout out to the Black Power Media folk I see here as well. Shout out to everyone else. Thanks for coming out. We had a great movie night. I only stayed for the first half. We saw a black exploitation classic, Willie Dynamite. They talked about the capitalist antagonism of unionized <laughs> pimping as Pimp well unions. as the need to unionize prostitution. It was quite an interesting juxtaposition of themes between collective bargaining and female exploitation. Of quite an amazing movie. You guys thought we were just trying to show you black exploitation. We were trying to get into your mind. Your yeah, mind mental. Mm-hmm. Dig it, Willie. You got to have vision. vision. <laughs> so actually, I want to make you a one minus one, which is zero. I'm a capitalist, dig. Oh Girl, who was who was the prostitute was talking about? You don't understand what it feels like being dug. I mean, really being dug. It's like Ow. okay. <laughs> she means you know they were digging her. Yeah, but she, they used dig in such a poetic way back then. Like it really meant something. The way the way she finally had when she finally broke free from her life of prostitution and Willie comes back with his fucking pimp charm. You don't see my vision. You are a part of my vision. Really? That's all it takes. Yep. Maybe I could have stayed married if I just would have fucking said the right things. He's a teacher. <laughs> vision. Good enough. Vision. Speaking of vision and speaking of uh, black exploitation, mm-hmm. please welcome the sometimes why of TIR, Derek Varn. Hey. hey. Derek Sean King Varn. <laughs> I'm a capitalist, you dig? 
Derek is a black dude name. That is a black dude name. Yeah, it kind of is actually. <laughs> um, uh, if your I'm name was Derek Brown, you would walk up to job interviews. People would be real confused. They'd be like, "Oh, really? What? <laughs> yeah, Jackson? Are you sure? Was your grandpa a GI?" <laughs> yeah. The thing is, Varn is so weird. Nobody has any racial association with it, so it's that's true. <laughs> I have a name that you could answer. Like, does not will not answer race question. And probably get away with it. Plus, I've been told by people I look like somebody from every race, which is weird. Um, Don't. So, like, <laughs> You're every so man. somebody confused somebody confused me and Kenzo Shibata, and I'm like, he's <laughs> it's just no. the name. It's just the name. <laughs> the fact that you went to the Greek freak to sell copies of the Communist Manifesto makes you cool with me, so it doesn't make a difference. To Greek free. <laughs> we're in matching outfits today. It's so cute. Oh, I we guess we are. Yeah. You. Yeah. Oh, look at that. You know the, why? Because they're like the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Uh, or when you have to get up at eight in the morning to do another stream for another TIR show, you just grab whatever <laughs> collared shirt you have around. <laughs> we're lucky he had a collared shirt. You are lucky. Right? <laughs> The ebony and ivory of dialectical materialism. <laughs> <laughs> the Murtaugh and Riggs of podcasting is Barn and Pascal. I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> Can you say that just one time in this show, Pascal, that you're getting too old for this shit like Danny Glover and Lethal Weapon 1? Just oh, man. <laughs> this is all right. Y'all keep me young. Dude, Danny Glover was 41 when he did that movie. That's crazy. Yeah, that's that's great acting. I'm telling you, I rewatched that. Me and Burgess rewatched that a few weeks ago, and uh, there's hella little nuances I noticed. Like Danny Glover walks like his feet hurt because you're old, right? If you're old, your feet hurt. Exactly. Because I've met Danny Glover, and he walks like a cool ass dude. Like he walked in kind of like Willie Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> That man gliding down the stairs was so great. Yeah, I met him in the Bay. It was a Bay event. Uh, Willie Dynamite gliding down the stairs, Pascal. That was great. That was classic. Can we say, can we say right now, shout out to P. Robert for suggesting after I played that short clip, we actually watched Willie Dynamite. Insisting. Insisting. I'm glad we did that. <laughs> he insisted like he was getting royalties off the play. Like, Listen, we have to do this. Seeing the, the, Gordon from Sesame Street pay a play in 1970s Pimp is always going to be something so worth good. checking out. I can't get so the good. picture of the bank. Your accounts are all frozen. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Say what, Jack? <laughs> waterfall oh my god you guys talking about daddy talking about danny glover in the chat there's a great scene in the first lethal weapon where the prostitute's house they're going to um interrogate explodes and the only people that saw it were those three little black kids and so they well we have to ask these kids you know who if they saw anybody and as danny glover walks up to the kids because they're like well you walk up to the kids because you're black as well the kid goes 
My mom said police shoot black people. Is that true? <laughs> and then he just doesn't deny it. <laughs> said, right, if they look like you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Only if their pants are sagging. Like why? Yeah, were their pants sagging? <laughs> like I watched that scene, and I, you know, I've seen the movie like a million times, and it just hit so different as an adult. I was like, oh damn he just when he just goes oh like that's all he does he doesn't go no that's a misnomer and then mel gibson laughs and walks away oh god (laughs) that bastard i will say this lethal weapon one no no black uh, villains were harmed in that film at least there's an anomaly Anthony Kiedis' dad gets fucked up in that movie. Hmm. He doesn't ever want to feel like he did that day. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are so mean. Poor Derek was having like serious conversation with Gene Bajlan an hour before, and now we're sitting here making jokes about Danny Glover. Yeah. We're having serious conversation about fucking Dungeons and Dragons, so you know. <laughs> still counts. Uh, still although counts. It, it was serious, we were actually talking about contract law, but still, like. <laughs> and, you know what Derek's thinking now? He's like, "Should I watch Willie Dynamite or Lethal Weapon after this show?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen either. Um, Willie Dynamite, I think I saw as a kid, uh, which I don't know why I was watching weird <laughs> black exploitation movies as a child. But... I know why, because you know, he's going to see some nude scenes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, let, let, yes, yes, it's, it's like watching Scrambled Cinemax in 1994. Yeah. Like Scrambled Cinemax. I thought it's hot in Cracktown had a lot more nudity than Willie Dynamite. Did hot in Cracktown have any nudity other than the fake boobs? Everybody was topless in its hot and crack town. The opening scene, which is like, I can't even look. I, I turned away. I was like, this is, I can't, I'm so sorry. I felt so bad. I watched it because I didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> you said you thought it was raining. I like, thought it was raining. On that woman? It's only raining on her. That's messed up that they left her outside in the rain. It wasn't rain. There. It, it was wasn't rain. Oh, <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> Jeremy, shout out to Jeremy Salmon as well. Can we give a shout out to Jeremy Salmon? Yes. Double feature movie night. Jeremy Salmon, shout out. And and Pascal, I believe I recorded it this time, so patrons can actually see movie night. Well, all right. But they'll mm-hmm. see us seeing movie night, so it's gonna be even funnier because they can see some of the comments, which is yeah. the funny. The best part about movie night is the the peanut gallery. Where's the peanut gallery? Oh my god! All the cats that watched it had me on my back. <laughs> there were some comments that just was too much. But let's bring in. <clears throat> let's get serious. Mm-hmm. 
our man on the streets in Latin America. There's a lot going on actually in his home country. Please welcome kind of another sometimes why in the TIR universe. There is no kind of, he is a sometimes why in the TIR universe. Mm-hmm. He is, he is the, a part of this crew. He's shaking his head. Yes, I am. You are, you are part of this. Look, I'm looking at you right now in the virtual green room right now. But look, please welcome Camilo Gomez. Thank you. Camilo, you, you are part of the, you are part of the TI, TIR extended universe. Definitely all day, every day. Welcome back. <laughs> so here, I did write a little bit of an intro. In December of this past year, President of Peru, Pedro Castillo, was ousted in what many call a right-wing coup after he attempted to dissolve a primarily right-wing Congress and rule by Cree. The wake of the ouster of Castillo, violence has erupted with over 40 deaths uh, at the hands of the new right-wing regime in office. We bring our man, Camilo Gomez, that's in Peru, to give us a little context on what's happening. So... Camilo, what is going on in Peru right now? Yes, so uh, the story more or less begins in, 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 in December when like the, there were rumors that uh, the, the then president Pedro Castillo was going to be indicted by, by Congress, impeached. And, uh, but a lot of people were kind of distracted because it was the World Cup and, you know, like kind of people like in other part, parts of Latin America, very interested in football and you know, didn't give too much credit to, to those uh, um, to those versions. But uh, but as, as, as the date of the of, of the of the particular process of, 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 of voting on, on, on the impeachment was going to happen, uh, uh, in the in the same day, like uh, Pedro Castillo called for for the solution of, of, of Congress, so he will not be impeached. But he uh, it, it kind of backtracked because he didn't have the support from the near from the military or from the police. So they arrested him, and he remains in jail. And they did formally like the impeachment, uh, and. Then it assumed like the the vice president of Pedro Castillo was you know Luarte. Uh, she uh, was someone was always seen as more moderate, uh, even if if was elected by the same party of Pedro Castillo. It, it seems like she had tried to be a presidential candidate of her own, but she didn't have like the the organization or or, or you know like uh, to 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 launch it, and it somehow like got connected with, with Peru Libre and was able to to be the vice presidential nominee. Uh, she is, uh, uh, you know, like uh, works in the public registry. So she's a bureaucrat. So it's much more familiar to some of the the internal dealings of, of, of the state that, 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 you know, Pedro Castillo was a peasant and rural teacher. Um, but the, the way it happened, and, it was seen as a as a betrayal of, of by many Peruvians, particularly in rural Peru, where the protest started. Even if she, um, you know, like uh, is someone who comes from 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 rural Peru, from the Andes, uh, from the region of Apurímac, that's where the protest started and the repression started. 
and the in 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 Apurimac, like the the region from where she is from, they they started the the first uh, casualties like uh, of protesters. Um, that you know, like it, it it seems clear that that the that the repression was very abusive in the sense like there were even even minors that were that died those days of of repression when it started and that kind of led the to protests to grow around the country uh then like the president um signed a, a declaration of emergency so the military went and, and 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 there were more killings now in in ayacucho and and there have been different clashes but a lot of the organizations uh because the Peruvian economy is very informal, know that a lot of, 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 of people need the sales of, of Christmas. So they kind of give a Christmas truce uh, toward the, the, you know, the, the start of Christmas and, and toward New Year and the 4th of, of, uh, of, of January, it was going to restart the protest and uh, they did. And this Monday, the protests uh, in Juliaca, which is a city in the in the region of Puno, in the Southern Andes, uh, had you know the most casualties uh, so far. Um, so it's uh, 17 civilians and, and one police officer have died of, of, of those clashes. Uh, it it is the it, it was uh, the the most a lot of, of them died because they they tried to take an airport. In the past, uh, there has been also attempts to take an airport. Some things have been fatal, but not as, as, as much people. Like some argue that because cities are so sparse in, in some parts of, of the country, like the airport is kind of the only central place to some degree. And, 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 the, and, and so there was this idea of taking the airport and, and uh, the repression was very intense. Uh, at this point, there are uh, 49 people dead in, in the entirety wow. of the process. Uh, many of them are are minors. Uh, some of them were not even part of the protest. People that were just uh, walking <laughs> and really were yes, there were two cases. One man was helping a, a, a man that was shot on the streets. So he also was shot, and the other case was a doctor that was helping the people injured also was shot. So. Uh, uh, the Commission for uh, the, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights has, has mentioned that there are a lot of, uh, of human rights violations, uh, uh, but there there is not a clear answer to to the political crisis in the sense like that uh, a lot of the calls in the in the the majority call in the in the protest is that that there should be immediate elections. And another important call for the protest is that there should be um, a new, a, new uh, a referendum for a new constitution. But then the other calls are, 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 are more radical in some way, which are, you know, like the for Dina Bluarte to resign, which is it, it's a call that has been growing. Also the, the dissolution of Congress uh, and also, some in some cases, the liberation of, of Pedro Castillo, and, and in other cases, even the restitution of Pedro Castillo's president. So the this puts the things in a very complex situation, and the Peruvian political class without too much uh, willing to 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 dialogue.
Well, let me ask you this real quick before I pivot to the fellas. Uh, is it possible for Pedro Castillo to be reelected if they were to have a new election? Uh, I, I don't think so, because the the at, at this point he's he's arrested. So so I, I don't think he is going to be able to to be reelected. And he has also lost support to some degree. But I, I feel that this protest the, the key to understand it is is an opposition to 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 Congress, which has ninety six percent of disapproval, which is really something that even Congress previous Congress were very unpopular, didn't have as high numbers of disapproval. Uh, which um, there, there was a vote when when the last year uh, that was going to to call for elections in 2024, but uh, the the call of the protest is, is immediate elections because there are a lot of undemocratic moves within the current Congress that didn't want to recognize the results of, of the Pedro Castillo victory. Uh, and also they are trying to remove the electoral institutions, even if Pedro Castillo is, is not democratic, <laughs> he ne never tried to remove the electoral authorities. Also, a uh, uh, right congressman uh, has called on to um, the, hand out the, 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 the ballots to the, to the military uh, in, in new elections, which uh, mimics the proposal by Bolsonaro. Also, there is the proposal, uh, and, and now like it, it, it seems clear that there is a, a much more authoritarian government going on. Uh, like even the U.S. embassy has uh, has is going to remove the 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 ambassador Lisa Kena, uh, uh, which has been seen as, as given too much support to to. Um, to the government of Daniel Duarte. Let's remember something that sometimes gets forgotten. Peru has taken one of the most pro-Ukrainian positions uh, in Latin America. Um, it, it was very difficult because uh, Peru, a lot of its weapons actually <laughs> it, it buys from, from Russia, but it complicated a lot of the, of the process of, of the country of the normal functioning because it depends heavily on, 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 on agriculture. Uh, and and but it doesn't produce uh, um, you know like uh, fertilizer, so it's dependent basically of, of Russia, and, and and a lot of the the production has been dwindling, and people have tried to use uh, uh, you know organic uh, you know like uh, fertilizers, but but it's not the same. It's much more difficult to process it. So it has been very difficult for a country, but you know in that sense, you know like it has been very central. Uh, you know like uh, the the government uh, of Pedro Castillo organized the OAS meeting, and in the in the meeting, like uh, the, the central speaker was uh, Zelensky. <laughs> so I, I think that the, there is a slight pivot in, in American foreign policy in this, like um, because a lot of the rhetoric that you know, like the far right, but also like institutionally, uh, the the. Uh, you know, a, a great sector of the Peruvian political class, including the, the president and, and 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 the ministers, are using it. Is that this is these are terrorists? That you know, like these are, or you know, supported by Morales. Uh, some have made some some compare comparisons of the of the protests in, in Peru and the protests in, in Chile some some years ago. I think it's worth reminding that also when the protests started there, like 
some people argue that this protest had been organized by, by Maduro, but as we know, it, that, that wasn't the case. Camilo, I'd like to ask a question about uh, Dina, the current president, Dina Boluarte. I think that's the way that her name is pronounced. What I found fascinating is that she was once a member. She comes into power as a member of Castillo's administration as one of his vice presidents. Yet at the same time, now she comes from a position where she's making coalitions with the right-wing Congress that's completely opposed to Castillo. Was she a coalition, was she an attempt by Castillo in the first place to try to get concessions from his opposition? Or was she never really ideologically aligned with his project? Or did she flip on him once she came into power? What exactly are her ideological politics relative to Castillo? And how exactly does she go from being part of his cabinet to basically being a, being willing to work with his opposition enemies at this particular juncture? Yeah, that is a very interesting question. I, I don't think certainly the, the press, the international press, when it has been asking the, 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 the interviewees, which are, have been different, like sometimes have been from, from Peru, sometimes have been academics that work in, in Latin America about the ideological element in this protest. Uh, I feel that the issue is that Peru Libre is a, is an organization that has a very populist outreach, like and and that is what you know, like the, the some political scientists talk about tick and thin ideology, and it seems like in, in Peru Libre, like the tick ideology is is populism rather than leftism, even if there are kind of a left rhetoric in, in the organization. Because this party has already been uh, a regional government in, in Junín, which is the the largest and most prosperous region in the center of Peru. Uh, but it, it's not necessarily that it has had much, much change. It has slightly more investment on, 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 on Helkers, uh, the, 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 the leader of the party and, and, the, and, the, and the one that was governor of of Junín, which is this region center, was uh, is a doctor, so he knows more of the hill, you know, the healthcare sector. So, in that sense, he was slightly divergent than the other governors. But beyond that, it, it it wasn't really a match different from our regional governments, and it had a different rhetoric. And I think that's the the interesting part. And and in the case of of, of Castillo, Castillo was even much more populist. He he had a rhetoric which was even like much more sympathetic to markets, uh, it, it, not even markets, it, with capitalism, or right? In the sense, like you know, like he even talked about like instituting something like a the individual savings account, which BBC noticed, and then, yeah, they, they were kind of surprised. Like he said, he left his like the individual savings account was a proposal of the Cato Institute. <laughs> so it, it, it is, it is strange. It is. It was someone who, who, despite having a, a you know, a kind of a conception of being pro-unions, had a very strange kind of 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 of, of, um, of, of vision of, of, of politics and economy, and and it was the party is you know like because probably because of being over Peru, you know, it, it has a a much more socially conservative outlook. In the case of 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 Dina Boluarte, it's interesting because like she was accused in campaign of, of being a transfer because she works in the national registry and 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 and, and in Peru is legal for for trans people to change genders, 
but when a trans woman will go to, to change genders, like she encountered her and was going to ask a question and she answered really badly, you know, with transphobic insults and even called the cops to remove uh, uh, this trans woman from the building. So, uh, but at the same time, because she she's has is more has been in the in the in the government for a while, like she has this rhetoric about like against sexism and she criticizes that it's sexism and racism that are working against her, which is very laughable in the sense like uh, you know a lot some of the women that have been dyed are indigenous women who were in the protest. So uh, I, I do feel that it is different, her rhetoric from the traditional right, but, you know, she's much more of a populist interested in power rather than someone who, who had really deep ideological commitments. And she was also seen as much more moderate than, than, than Pedro Castillo and the rest of the party. Like, uh, I, I don't think... You know, like her politics were never really radical. So, can I can I uh, like elucidate a few things? Because um, I was listening, you know, I'm, I'm listening, and clearly, uh, Camilo, you know more about this than me. But since you got me onto this trip uh, in our first conversation, and and uh, God, it must have been 2018. Now, I've been actually following Peruvian politics, um, and um, one of the things I find really interesting about the way a lot of the U.S. left is talking about this is they seem to be talking about this as a defense of Castillo uh, and, and these movements, these rural movements as, as a defense of Castillo, which from what I can tell is, is true in some cases, but in general, it's more anger at the right wing Congress and the fact that the Constitution um, is frankly dysfunctional. I mean, you've had since 2019, there have been three presidents. Almost every one of them have dissolved Congress once. Um, and um, most of them have ended their tenure in prison. You know, it's it, it's it, this isn't even unique to Castillo. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you. um what you thought the reason what base did Castillo think he had when he because this is one thing you that was not mentioned in your summary but I think it's kind of important um uh dissolving the congress is common in in Peru the the executive can can vote no confidence on congress it happens a lot um but uh dissolving the constitution is not common and that was also something that Castillo did and that seems to have prompted the military to take advantage of that fact. Did he think he had, did Castillo think he had any basis in the military? Because I can't, I just, I just can't imagine a president trying to dissolve the constitution without military backing, unless they're really desperate or stupid. Yeah, this case, it, it seems desperation. I think that uh, there was a, a feeling that the prosecutors went, wanted to, to get him and that he was going either to be, impeached uh you know like the the probably like they wouldn't then let him to to go to an embassy and and and, and be asked for asylum which it seems that that was his strategy um the there was a journalist Gustavo Ritti which some consider the most important Peruvian journalist but since the uh the, the Peruvian mainstream media has gone very to the right and he's much more of a left winger, um, 
has not been um, you know much on the media like but the other day they they interview him and when they ask him about that they, they, he mentions that there hasn't been to this day uh, uh, an honest uh, uh, journalistic investigation mm. uh, from of, of what really happened that day but the issue is that because the the mainstream media has, has go a lot to the right at this point like the the only ones who who technically could do it are very small outlets that, that basically live of, of donations like you know like Patreon and things like that. So this kind of 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 of, of, uh, of investigation trying to 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 contact basically everyone who was in, in, in Palace that day it, it's something that that you know not really the independent media I don't think in Peru has really the the logistic capacity to do. Like uh, what I could say is that there is a vision that the base of the military in Peru, like the soldiers, are are further to the left than the leadership. That's a, a common perception. But uh, but the issue was it, it was it was key to have uh, uh, support from the leadership, and that's clear. Not what happened. Yeah. So I have another question because one of the things I found interesting is uh, Peru Libre did not at first, and not just because of the vice president, like the party itself did not defend Castillo hardly at all. And it seemed like he kept on making concessions to the more and more concessions to the right and not just the right in Peru. Like, you know, there's all these pictures of him hanging out with Bolsonaro and discussing um, a highway that's going to cut through the, the rainforest, um, which, you know, to Castillo's credit, I don't think he actually caved on, but he was definitely willing to discuss it. Like, it seemed like he had, he didn't really have even his party as a social base um, by the time you got to the end of his presidency. Um, and I think that's important to understand. I mean, if it's true, because again, I, I am reading in Spanish, but I also know that like, I'm not getting the whole picture. I know that most of the, most of the internal uh, journalism is is right wing to Peru. And I know that the, uh, the other journalism across Latin America, I mean, even a lot of the other left governments um, in, in Latin America uh, were not entirely trusting of Castillo. So, so like, I'm just trying to get a picture, like how bad did alienating Peru Libre and how did he do that? Like, how did he lose the support of the party? I mean, I know why he would never have the right wing Congress, but, he didn't seem to have his own party support either. I think that there is an idea about the Peruvian anthropologist Javier Torres, who calls uh, Peru as an, an archipelago that has been that a lot of the the, the quote unquote like the connections, the bridges have been uh, broke. And in that sense, probably it, it, it also helps explain like this whole chaos that the original candidate of, of Peru Libre was going to be. Um, Vladimir Serron, who has been a governor in in in, 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 the, in Junín, which is the the, the most uh, uh, prosperous part of the of the of the of central Peruvian Andes, but uh, he, he has been accused of a lot of uh, corruption, and he he's currently uh, inhabilitated to 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 seek office. So. Uh, you know, like for some reason, he he thought Casillo had been a, a union leader of a of a rebel uh, uh, teachers union could be a, a, a good option. And you know, it, allegedly at the beginning, they actually thought you know like he was going to be able to 
to have a um, more or less a, a legislative position rather than him to win. And the position of, of uh, Castillo in himself had tried to, to inscribe his party, but as, as, as the people are aware, because of the pandemic, heavily hit Peru, like a lot of things, like even going to the streets to to request signatures was going to be difficult. Um, and the same happened for, for Dina Boluarte, who also was trying to, to get a, uh, being an independent candidate of, of not, not in Peru Libre. But those both, for some reason, knew that kind of Vladimir <laughs> uh, uh, Serrón was seeking candidates, you know, like, and, and, you know, like, uh, for some reason, like, he selected them. I feel like uh, that the the party was highly suspicious of, of, of Castillo being very kind and, and, and supportive of, of his his uh, paisanos to say in the in the in the way that people in Latin America call the people from from their towns from from their, their province uh, uh, Chota and from his region Cajamarca. Uh, so he selected a lot of people that were not necessarily leftists, but you know people if he knew, um, and and you know that gave him a lot of distrust. And actually, like at, at this point, that Pedro Castillo ended up resigning from 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 Peru Libre, also uh, Dina Boluarte. I, I do feel that that's why they had tensions because like they wanted more ministries, and, and but the issue is that the also something important in, in this in this whole crisis that we haven't discussed is that Dina Boluarte was going to be impeached too, that it was because she had signed documents from a provincial club, which it is, I don't know how to say it outside Latin America because it's basically because Lima has, Lima has a large population, but a lot of the population hasn't been born in, in Lima. So what happens is that the regions or 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 provinces or, or even some town some towns have kind of clubs where people from the region like kind of reunite once in a year or sometimes even even um, even even sooner or, or more times in, in a month to, to kind of commemorate the traditions of that area. So she was a member of, of one of these provincial clubs, which you know like kind of give a, a contact to the to 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 you know like their the people from their area so she was uh, a president of, of that uh, of the of the regional club from her region and 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 allegedly she had signed some 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 documents while she was in office and technically the constitution doesn't allow a, a president or vice president to to be in any other role so Congress could have impeached on, on legal grounds, even if some lawyers argue that, you know, like, even if it's constitutional, like, it's not the spirit of the Constitution. So, you know, the kind of, of some arguments that, to some degree, even of people that were critical of her, you know, like, have some base. So it's not, you know, like, just a defense of her. But the fact that Congress had the possibility and didn't do it, it was because probably they had some kind of, of conversations with her because the rhetoric was that she's as bad as Castillo, that, that you know, a lot of this uh, 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 of criticism, but then it kind of become like, uh, no, she she's different and, and, and she's going to, 
to to be a, the president, and, and and they didn't pass the impeachment, and 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 and, and when Castillo uh, called on to call on to close Congress, and then was impeached, she is him. Pedro, I'd like to ask, community, I'd like to ask you a question about the reaction, not only from the American left, but also from the uh, quote-unquote uh, elements of the progressive faction that exists in the Democratic Party of the United States, when why I'm seeing such inconsistency. For example, in the case of Brazil, we realized that there was a, a basically a insurrection or coup attempt in Brazil under Lula, who was assumed to be in a friend of the left, at least, to be generous, at, at, at least. And there was all of this kind of uh, reaction from the Biden administration. AOC was was tweeting about how we have to restore, do we have to protect democracy in Brazil, so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, why is there not an equal call to protect the legitimacy of the political process in Peru with Pedro Castillo, and no one seems to be particularly concerned with all of the uh, bloodshed that's going on relative to this process. Is it because there's something about a dialectical difference between how the ruling class views Lula compared to Castillo? There's I, no I, oil in Peru. Oh, oh you and Varn want to chime in? I'm interested in, in, in how you would explain this, that, this uh, dichotomy of reaction. Yeah, I, I think it is interesting. I, I feel that probably it has to do with the U.S. left centering and the discourse of democracy, which is curious because the discourse of democracy used to be promoted by, uh, you know, like, uh, well, National Endowment for Democracy also has a very strong discourse of democracy. And, and it's curious some some people come from, from also the technically the left there. Um, but the... I feel it is interesting because the the when Castillo has has go like uh, the the I suppose the equivalent of Wall Street like the the you know it's 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 has been much more happy like a lot of, of economic optimism even if Castillo was not really radical in economic terms he maintained um, the president of, of the of the central reserve bank he put you know a lot of uh, the first uh, minister of finance was relatively progressive but then the, the the second and third one were more or less you know neoliberals so i, I don't think there was you know like uh, a lot of you know like a transgression toward toward uh, neoliberalism rather than uh, instability, but I also think that there is something that that is was clear from the beginning that the the difference. I think that that the reason why why Bolsonaro was able to come back is that there is a huge section of the of the elite in Brazil that is behind Bolsonaro that is that is behind uh, Lula and that was behind Bolsonaro. And that is, they saw that Bolsonaro didn't have the economic success they were expecting, like they are trying now with Lula. I, I don't think that's the same with uh, with Pedro Castillo, because the elite overall uh, didn't support him. Uh, so a lot of the people that supported him were 
more or less opportunistic people that wanted to have, you know, like uh, some say in the government, some some governmental office, but not not really even ideological, just people that, you know, like wanted a, a job, you know, and, and since Peruvian economy is very informal and some government jobs are quite high paying, that's basically what they wanted. So would you argue that, because you, you just brought up a very interesting point about the Bolsonaro factor, would you ar argue that the dialectic in Brazil, because Bolsonaro was so uh, abhorrent to the international liberal elite, put Lula in a position where he would be more important to be protected as a political project than uh, Pedro Castillo in in Peru, who did not have that same kind of opposition, at least in the international elite's eyes? Do you think that was a factor as well? I'm, I'm asking your opinion. I don't have a definitive answer. I, I think it is it is interesting because the the, the, the way that we are seeing the, the, the current moment is that I think the COVID-19 pandemic played a central role because, uh, I mean, like, if the project is having economic growth with uh, depredation of the environment, that's basically the Paraguayan model. And it has worked. Like, Paraguay, in economic terms, has grown. But the issue for Bolsonaro was trying to do that in the context of a pandemic. And, yeah, that was very difficult. <laughs> uh, so the he handled very bad the pandemic, and that's something that, you know, for... Uh, a significant part of the lead was was uh, was important in, in in kind of their shift toward toward Lula, which they were not completely excited, but they kind of knew, you know, like that was not as radical as as, as people were saying. Vaughn, can you jump in here? I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on. We lost your audio, Vaughn. One is I'm going to say. Uh, um, from the outside looking in um, for the American left, Pedro Castillo also looks incompetent. Um, and whether or not that's true is a different question. Whether or not he even could be competent, which I think is actually uh, the more important question because the incoherence of the Peruvian constitution. Um, uh, another thing I think is 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 uh, that we should think about when we talk about the Democrats and specifically in their Democratic Socialist colleagues um, is that nothing in the Peruvian situation maps onto the American political map. It is fundamentally different. the The right in the Peru does not act like Trumpist. The, their attempts to frame this in terms of U.S. racial concerns also didn't really work. Um, and interestingly, um, outside of the initial election win, the U.S. left did not cover Castillo. Castillo was covered more by places like The Economist. And The Economist was oddly um, sympathetic to him, far more sympathetic than any Latin American source I read. Um, and, and I just think, frankly... Um, the, the situation in Peru, particularly when you, in regards to, uh, to democracy, it's not clear that there's a side in this that had a, a, a unified democratic mandate um, at all. Um, and that's hard for the American left to deal with. I mean, um, I, the democracy thing, we should always be somewhat skeptical of, although... 
while I am definitely pro democracy, I you know I grew, I came of age during the time period where that was the number one way to get in a medal with someone's elections, and and uh, the other I think a, a third thing even in like the more uh, conspiracy driven parts of the left. Um, the U.S. interest in this one isn't entirely clear. There isn't. In, there's like a general hegemonic interest, um, but uh, Castillo was making lots of concessions to the neoliberal order, as Camillo said. So, so it's 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 a much harder case. And and I also think um, with Lula in particular, we we have to get we have to remind ourselves that Lula is, regardless of his ideology one of the most effective political personalities of the 21st century. All right. And I think like that is sort of different because like when we talk about Lula, we also have to admit that like the, the, the party Trabajo, the workers party in Brazil, like totally botched the, uh, the, the ability to like back Lula up in, um, in the Brazilian Congress. Um, you know, Bolsonaro's party didn't lose as bad as Bolsonaro did. Uh, and Bolsonaro didn't lose as bad as everyone thought he should have, even with significant numbers of elites, you know, changing sides. And in fact, when I've talked to people from Brazil about the coalition that kind of held Lula together, you have a lot of like uh, very precarious, very poor, uh, you know, in classical Marxist term might be called peasants and lumpen. And then like a bunch of elites who switch sides. Like that was Lula's kind of coalition and Castillo's coalition is much more organic, much more grassroots. Um, but also, like I said, doesn't seem to map onto uh, U.S. political concerns. He does not have any of the social values. Uh, uh, Castillo has also made has gone out of his way to signal that he's not a Marxist. He's not a Chavezista. He's not a communist. He has no relation to shining path. I mean, he's those statements are made over and over and over again. And, and weirdly in this attempt to like, probably ingratiate himself and seem, you know, like he wasn't totally breaking Peru's role in the international order. Uh, also probably means that the left in America, if they understand it at all, and they probably don't, let's be honest, they don't, like, like the U.S., most U.S. leftists either don't pay attention to Latin America at all, they read uh, Eduardo Galeno like 20 years ago and have kind of stopped there. Um, and, and I think, you know, what I, I've been more interested in is finding out, like, what the Peruvian expat community in America thinks. But the other thing that I have to take with the caveat there is unlike, say, the Mexican-American community or the Nicaraguan community or the Honduran community, the Peruvian expat community tends to be um, from the from the, quote, middle classes, unquote. So they're, you know, and, and relative to Castillo's base, they're going to be from a higher social strata. Um, so, you know, even that's not going to be really reliable. Um, you know, uh, so I think there's that, um, that element to this, like, there's also not a whole lot of like, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of like, like, um, Peruvian indigenous in mass in the United States who could also correct any opinion of the left, uh, you know, and intervene, um, 
but you, the, the thing I can say before this, this, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, Castillo, you know, dissolving, uh, the way it's been reported is a self coup and then a counter coup. <laughs> um, so it is, it's, I don't know that the U.S. left has to bandwidth to explain something that complicated to their audience and say, "Okay, well, maybe Castillo fucked up, uh, but we have to support democracy in general. And, you know, and the government's clearly using this to opportunistically move right and suppress indigenous uh, concerns, et cetera. But it's also I think another thing, Pascal, is like the left in America has miscalled all all the latin american moves except for lula so far like like i can't think of something where jacobin's line for example has been in line with um uh what actually ends up happening in latin america i think about the chilean constitution run which they totally miscalled i think about um uh um the the way that sometimes um, AMLO is seen as more hostile to the United States than he actually is. Um, I, it, it seems like um, at least the, the, the white part of the left isn't really listening to people from the region uh, one way or another. And, uh, and, you know, that includes non-white electeds. Um, so it's it's uh, it, it's it's a thing where um, I'll be honest with you when I hear um, U.S. leftists talk about Latin America, if they're not from Latin America or they have not spent at least a year outside of the United States in Latin America, I don't take their opinion seriously. Like, I just I don't care what they have to say. And um, uh and, and that's because the reporting is generally so bad about like what's going on. Um, and if it's not, you know, if it's not like pink colored glasses, it's they trust the U.S. State Department. It, it like, uh, you know, it's and, and I think, uh, Pascal, on the Democrats, you kind of it's kind of obvious, right? Like they can go, look. The Trumpism is an international phenomenon. Look at the Bolsonaristas. They even did it on January 7th, even though like that's when most, you know, uh, people are sworn in. So it's going to happen around that time. But they, they can try like they can immediately connect it in the U.S. mind to January 6th to to all that stuff. You can't do any of that with the Castillo situation, even if you wanted to. It just it's not it doesn't map on in that way at all. Um, and that's, you know, that's my stance on it. But would you guys, would you guys all agree though, that kind of a, maybe a reason why you don't see a much American coverage of Peru, um, has a lot to do with the fact that Peru isn't a, a petrol nation, much like Venezuela, uh, much like Brazil. Well, it's all, I, I think, um. I think it's deeper than that is to say it's just not a petrol nation. We do, for example, care about Bolivia, but it's got lithium. Do we? Enough. I think, you know, I think, I think. Um, but, but do we care about Bolivia because there was the Elon Musk tweets and the fact that there's some natural resources that, that 
you know, are kind of everywhere that people thought Bolivia had more of than anywhere else? Yeah, well, I think, honestly, we care about these places because of strategic reserve reasons and which is petrol. But I, I, I also think, Jason, that like when we mess with petrol, we don't need other countries petrol. What we need is them to play on the international market in a particular way. Like, 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 and I think that's a, a common misunderstanding with Iraq too. I mean, it goes back to fucking Naomi Klein, but um, who I can not mention without swearing, but yeah. Speaking of celebrities, so something weird about Peru was that it was covered even by Stephen Colbert, but I think he put it in a very weird way that, you know, democracy had been restored. But one of the elements when when the quote-unquote coup was basically, he he said, like, close Congress, and, you know, two hours later he was arrested and, and in jail. But the issue is, how do you have a democracy if you don't have, uh, 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 you know, like primaries? The primaries are not, uh, you know, not... Uh, are not legislated. So like, it's basically like parties are basically controlled by, you know, like a lot of very particular interests, like, you know, business groups and with exception of, of the left, I suppose, like, but it, even like the left, you know, like Peru Libre is basically, uh, you know, uh, um, 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 controlled by, by Vladimir Serron. So it, it has, a, you, you have a very fragile democracy. Right. Uh, and, and in this fragile democracy, it's even struggling to survive, even if it, it's it's very fragile. And you know, in theory, it wouldn't, uh, you know, had the, the the kind of level of of uh, of uh, you know of accountability or things that you know other democracies need. So I feel that the that one element that that also makes uh, different, obviously, covering uh, you know like Peru than, than Brazil is that indigenous populations in different areas are, are, are very different. And for example, like the Aymara, which are um, uh, a huge chunk of the protesters that were in in, 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 in Juliaca are very culturally divergent from our indigenous populations. Like they are considered to be the most left-wing, but at the same time, they are the most friendly to the market, which could sound strange, but uh, like you know, some anthropologists have had argued that the Mara roots come from the from the Diwanaku civilization, and because of the Diwanaku civilization, like there are some disputes about whether it was an empire or, or a, some sort of stateless civilization. But the core of the connections was kind of commercial roots. So this kind of of, of idea of, of of commerce as as a center of, of it in some ways has prevented the neoliberal rhetoric, which could sound strange, but in, in a way, like people are free to, 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 to participate in an economy, which is, to be honest, very informal. But it, 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 it also brings people together in a, in a very different way. And, and I feel that's uh, something very important to, to have in mind because the, uh, you know, like the, the Aymara, even if they, who work in very different issues, like when there are protests, they 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 have been much more firm. And while most of the protesters like basically stopped for Christmas, they had continued to be a, a protest during Christmas, during New Year's. So the in some ways it, it was slightly 
more predictable than when the official <laughs> comeback of the of the protest uh, was going to to happen. Uh, there there was going to be a, a much more clashes. Although I, I don't think anybody really expected it was going to get that bad. But another element that I, I think gives a, a uh, a different level of, of complexity is that the protests are leaderless movement. Like this protest doesn't have leaders, so it's difficult to discuss with anybody. In the context of Chile, which sometimes gets compared, like with the protests that were some years ago, uh, the, the dialogue was with leaders of political parties, uh, and and there was the the vote for the referendum. But actually, the protests continue, and it only were stopped by the by the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> so uh, in, in this case, it, it's very difficult to, to, to see a, a kind of a, a, um, a horizon uh, without new elections, because like the, the, this Congress doesn't have any support, uh, you know, like, uh, and, 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 and this government also has lost support. Uh, the church was at other points seen as, as being able to to kind of uh, being um, being a mediator, but the church was seen as anti Pedro Castillo. So at this point, even if if, if the head of the church has say like the, uh, the, that you know like uh, the noble order should resign, I, I don't think it has gotten much courage. Uh, I, I don't think. I think this this level of crisis it, it, it hits a lot of of levels and, and the Peruvian political class has shown a lot of incompetency. Uh, so it, it's difficult to follow even for people that are in Peru because some of the things are really not surprising. Like Ludwig Huber, which is an anthropologist, um, said in an interview in 2021, if Castillo is impeached, there were going to be massive riots. So it, it, he said even before Castillo assumed in office. So it, it's not something like, you know, like, you know, it was really a mystery. It, it was something that people really expected. And the fact that the Peruvian political class of all people were the ones that didn't believe uh, on what, you know, many experts who studied rural Peru had been, uh, had been warning uh, shows that, you know, like it, it's going to be a very difficult situation to solve. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I, I, uh, I guess I have um, a, a few questions um, uh, about, you know, what what the what the way out of this impasse is. I mean, you mentioned the leaderless movement. I think I might uh, slightly disagree with you that Chile was leadered. Um, I think it was leaderless and then parties stepped in and started negotiating and representing. And right now I think you're right in Peru. There's no one to step in like Peru labor is not going to do it. Um, they're, they're implicated. Um, uh, and, and so there it's, you know, it's interesting though, what you were describing this, uh, Camillo, I, I, uh, I kept on thinking, man, you know, so you're talking about how there's no democracy in Peru because it's like, you know, America, like the United States, because we also like primaries are governed by like state law. Like you don't actually have to have them. There's states that kind of don't. Um, and and they weren't part of our system until the fucking 50s. 
the 1950s. So it's like, it's like, you know, uh, it's, it's one of the things where like, I do think in some ways there's, there is a class of liberal who's, who doesn't want people to look too much at like, you know, Oh, this constitution in, in Peru's anti-democratic and dysfunctional. Let's look at why. Oh, it looks a lot like the U S. Oh, um, uh, which I, which I also think now liberals have more on the talking points about like uh, how anti-democratic the U.S. is. But th- I think that's interesting. And I also think the leaderless movement thing is interesting because one thing I'll say about about a lot of the U.S. is other than the DSA, which always seems to be late. Um, uh, most of our movements are fucking hashtags. Like there's no yeah. leaders for them too, and then and then they have leaders later. Like then you have a formal BLM organization, or you have uh, the DSA speak for these workers, or or what have you. But most of them start, you know, they're not they're not led. They don't have good leadership. They just kind of happen organically, and and um, somebody takes in and opportunistically takes advantage of that. But but that's not. I guess there's nobody to do that in Peru. Well, real quick, uh, just going to break up the conversation for one second. This is the Saturday free show here at TIR. uh, And everything you've been hearing for the last 12 minutes is all bonus material. We do not go to the champagne room tonight where we do our call-in segment. And we've been talking about it a lot on the show. And Toussaint has been saying we should do a Saturday call-in so people can see what we do on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So... Right now, there is a number on the screen, uh, 626-873-8. I can't see from this far because my eyes. 873-8658. The phone lines are open. If you guys have any comments, anything you'd like to add in this conversation, you'd like to talk to Derek Varn, Pascal Robert, or Camilo Gomez, the phone lines are open, and they will be open for only a short time. Because this shit's expensive. We coming for you, nigga. That's what the collection guy says to me when the bill comes up for the phone lines. So continue. Yeah, I mean, you were asking me about like the way out of the crisis, like uh, the the proposal many people have is like the Dina Larcher renounced because at this point like he she's just making things much worse uh, the the top prosecutor is investigating technically her and, and part of their cabinets for for a lot of uh, the, this 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 deaths um, there have been reports of, of you know like people being shot like you know even in, in a lot of um, there are some versions that even like army are armament that is not on on the on the police list is technically being used. So um, a lot of these things had to be investigated. But the problem is that the prosecutor that you know technically is investigating uh, you know like the 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 government and even it for genocide. But the assumption of some people is that you know by putting the charge of genocide, which is very difficult to prove. Uh, you know, like is is just a plane, and that one of those expressions is that recently she is dismantling a lot of the human rights prosecution office in the country and turning into anti 
terrorism offices. So a lot of the of the key of the, these protests have been the accusation of the them being organized by by supporters of the Shining Path, and and, and this has generated uh, a lot of problems because like you know like the on the official narrative that the state gives uh, is that you know the Shining Path was defeated. Um, there was an offshoot of the Shining Path, the the military uh, Communist Party of Peru, which is still in part of the Amazon, um, but it is very small. Actually, like it was, it was heavily impacted in in, in the years of Pedro Castillo. Even there was leaks. Uh, uh, there were when there were the Wakaymaya leaks, the leaks of different militaries in, in Latin America, which curiously were not covered in the U.S. Um, even if it had a lot of information, was really interesting. Uh, one of the informations was that the the shining, well, the the offshoots of shining path, the 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 MPCP had a really bad impression of 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 of, of Pedro Castillo. That you know, like the, he was an enemy, and they were even planning to to kill him. Um, and the you know, like, and it's curious. Uh, one. Uh, former defense minister was actually, you know, someone relatively conservative, but he was able to 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 heavily impact the the region with bombings, like the where you know, like the the camps are. Um, and despite that, he was more or less forced to to resign because they were investigating even for for eating. Like you know, it's. Technically, like ministers could could use their budget to to eat, like in in the work day. So it's not, you know, like something like, you know, like very minor compared to other cases of corruption. So it is. I feel like that. So it, but the complication of this rhetoric. So the other organization that people put uh, as linked to to the shiny part is the Moadef, which calls for the for the uh, it used to call for for the liberation of of of, of Guzman, who actually died during the Pedro Castillo presidency. The Congress even approved a law, which uh, uh, so his his body was disappeared. Like we don't know where his body is, uh, and that law was even supported by left. Like everyone supported. The only person I have to say in my entire timeline, which I followed people from everywhere. Only one person opposed it, and curiously, it was an American that works uh, for a publication of uh, security issues. Like, so not a lefty, <laughs> and 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 so it's not something that had you know like much opposition. Like, uh, the the but the Moadef is present, and curiously, it has gained some support against the mil in the military. Uh, you know, in former military, because it, it calls for an amnesty. Uh, there have been reports of them even going to pro-life marches. Uh, so, but the issue is like uh, it's difficult to say this presence is massive. Even like the former editor of the Economist, who is someone who nobody is going to accuse of being a left winger, has said that you know, like uh, you know, like in Lima, for example, it, it doesn't have really too much support. Like it, 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 it's not a massive organization. It's not a party. It, it, it is, it is incapable of organizing the national protests, and and the protests are, are getting national. And people 
probably remember in some parts of, of Peru, the shiny pad actually don't, didn't even have a, a base of support. So basically, when when they came out, like the the, the Ronda Campesinas, you know, like the peasant um, self defense organizations, basically kill them. Uh, and and it was a cooperation with the indigenous communities and the armed forces and the and the police forces that killed them. So now having a, a, a narrative of, of the everyone that protests is, is, is a sympathizer of Shiny Pat, it's really like uh, uh, excessive. But it has been done to try to 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 justificate the the the, the, the human rights abuses that are being committed, like they are throwing a. Um, you know, like from helicopters, it, it seems that they are throwing um, tear gas. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is really indiscriminate the the violence that is being used. So, uh, I do think that if we are in a point where even Joe Biden feels that it needs to change the ambassador because he seems that she has been too supportive of of this government, is that you know, like this is no longer something minor. Is a uh, is uh, an authoritarian regime that 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 uh, that is not trying to preserve democracy, but you know, trying to to just uh, uh, keep power. And I do feel that in this context, the the, the proposal is that uh, that the you know, like that uh, uh, Dina at this point needs to resign. That Congress needs to. Uh, you know, elect uh, a new leadership table, which will include a new president of Congress, because the current president of Congress is not someone seeing as, as, as uh, with sympathy by by, by protesters, uh, and you know, like uh, call for elections for this year. But it's going to be difficult because Dina don't want to resign, and and many don't expect Congress to to act in in this way, trying to change their 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 president. Uh, so. It is a, a very difficult situation. Many argue that, 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 the, that the pressure of the international community is going to be very, very important. Um, one element that probably uh, people haven't not give too much uh, uh, mention in is that a lot of these protests were heavily in, 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 in rural Peru, where there was the, 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 the Castillo had its, its larger base. Um, but now they have grown. Like the coast of Peru didn't was was not many much supportive of Castillo, even if he won there. Like it was a very like slimmer margins, or even the Amazon. But now even the coast and the Amazon are, are supporting him, are more than supporting him, are supporting the 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 protest. Also in Lima, the protests were very small because some of the people in the protest were calling for you know, like, uh, liberate, uh, you know, liberation of, of, of Pedro Castillo, even, uh, you know, like, uh, his, his statement. So since he was not ever popular in Lima, you know, like, very, it was very small, the protests compared to now, where the protests are larger, because now the protests are against uh, the, the human rights violations of, of, of this of this government, and and and, and it's clear that the, 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 the reactions are very different in, in Lima. Um, in, in in the Lima downtown, with the center of Lima, it, it has it has been a, a little bit more um, confrontational, but not you know like with the same balance that, that people haven't died, um, and even in Miraflores, which is a much more um, wealthy part of the 
of, of the city, you know, one of the wealthiest parts of the city and the entire country, like the protests have been like very, you know, very normal. Like at most people, you know, like some of the police officers said, you don't walk by in the, in the, in the avenue itself, just in the borders. Uh, but there have been some attempts there of, of people uh, that live there that, to throw uh, eggs or or people passerby insult them. So it, it shows that you know like kind of the an opposition for, from above in some way. Like uh, that a lot of the elites you know have normalized this discourse of, of, of the other as communists as serious. Um, so the I feel that this is a, a moment where. Um, there are a lot of elements going on because there, this Congress also is, is very undemocratic, and it's even trying to 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 ban to run for office a lot of more technocratic figures that you know are much more liberal, uh, like the former president Francisco Sagasti, who you know like uh, more or less came of office in a transition cabinet, mm -hmm. and, and he is uh, you know he's someone who was a. Uh, uh, you know, worked in the war one for many years, not a leftist of any kind, you know, like uh, there was the uh, former minister of, of, of finance, someone who was praised by the Financial Times economists. These are not radicals. Like uh, they, they try. So I feel that this is an element that, that probably is going to even uh, generate some conflict within the within the not necessarily the local elites, but the foreign elites, because like, if you put a sense of of the technocrats are are gone, like they are not going to see their investments very safe, and and and, and even if Peru doesn't have much oil, uh, it it has important reserves of, of oil minerals, uh, so also lithium. Um, so sometimes people forgot that Peru also has lithium, but the so I think the situation is, is very complex and it's, it's going to be uh, very connected to, to, to the international pressure in order to, to have a change. Now, I'm seeing some reports, the few, the little bit of reporting that I am seeing on this. Um, they are talking about a racial element to the protests. Is that just kind of Americans trying to make it juicy for Americans to, to click on something? talking about the racial element or is there truly a uh, a racial element to these protests i think in a way yes like the protests are much more repressed obviously in 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 in, in more of the andean regions we had a larger indigenous population like as i mentioned like in in, in lima which it, it has a much more heterodox population in, in some ways but you know like you didn't have seen this kind of violence like I, I, I mean, it's uh, if 17 people will have died, like, if, I don't know, like, if, if a lot, if all these people, if all these uh, people will have died in Lima, I think the reaction will have been very different. Um, I, I think that the, that it's clear that there is an angle, uh, that there was, you know, a racial element against, against Pedro Castillo. Um, and 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 also now against the protesters, particularly in the in the in the Andean South. Um, but uh, the but I, I do feel that the that the confrontation of the country is not even 
like as some political scientists have called between Fujimorism and anti-Fujimorism, mm -hmm. or in between the left or the right, or between the the even some argue the establishment and the anti-establishment. I do feel at this point the, the the conflict is between the the political class and and and, and the entire country, and and I feel that is the it's a much more complex, uh, you know, like a, a, you know, a bridge to build because there is a complete distrust in this political class. And I feel like um, there are many elements even within the technocracy that, you know, like are now protesting against this. Uh, so I, I feel like it, it is more the politicians itself, the elected officials, curiously, of all people uh, that, you know, like are are kind of intensivating this this conflict, and 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 the these racial lines, which are are clear in many ways, because uh, Peru was one of the few countries in Latin America to try to incentivate like a public transfer system, mm -hmm. but when uh, you know, like uh, politicians figure out, uh, you know, like there were uh, Andean immigration coming, like they tried to 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 cancel these public transfer systems because in that way, like the, it was going to be much more difficult for particular for people of a few resources to mobilize within the city. Uh, it, it didn't in any way help because like the, the, since the economy is very informal, like people have buses, but, but, but still there was this, this kind of, of attempt to, to kind of, uh, of, of, of separate populations. And, and I think that has led to a, to a very big divide that, that, that is still like is central to, to Peruvian politics. Well, uh, the phone lines are still open for a little bit. If you guys want to call in and have your voice be heard, the number's on the screen. 626-873-8658. Pass yeah, I have a, a larger question that I'd like to ask uh, our panel, as well as uh, Jason can chime in as well. What exactly does the current state of affairs in Peru tell us about the position of this phenomenon that was once known as the pink tide in Latin and South America? Uh, some would say that what's happening in Nicaragua means that the pink tide is moving on. What's happening? What happened in Colombia with their recent elections means the pink tide is moving on. Uh, uh, some would say that the, the the return of Lula would uh, argue that the pink tide is moving on. Is is it even correct to use that discourse anymore to really address the political phenomenons in Latin Latin and South America? And a secondary question is that why particularly on a, from a materialist analysis do these countries seem to be the only ones that even have some embers of a left socialist political project that can take state power? Now, I, I don't want to even talk about China, communist China. We don't we need to put that into the equation right now, but in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I, I think it is interesting, uh, the, the, the issue with the Bing wave, because now there are elections coming in, in Argentina and many analysts argue that Peronists are going to lose. Uh, in Argentina, like the other left force is the, the Trotskys, but they don't have enough support to 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 pass to the second round. Uh, even more support to pass to the second round have the libertarians, uh, which is, is kind of curious. 
Um, so I, I think in some ways, like uh, this ping wave was the, which has a lot of things, you know, like was the end in government sentiment, but also was the, 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 the crisis in, 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 in Latin America from the COVID-19 pandemic was really strong. So a lot of people saw uh, the healthcare system have been devastated for decades and, and there wasn't that much change. And that was, you know, what caused that Latin America was the region with, with most fatalities with, 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 so far, at least uh, with, with all this great crisis. Um, the new governments, which were very diverse, um, but with the exception of Bolivia, were fairly pro-vaccination. Bolivia was a really weird case because the mass is really populous on vaccines, so it kind of was not too pro-vaccines, but in general was really pro-vaccines, and, and, and that kind of led to some degree of sense of, 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 of public policy, even so in, in the presidential election in Peru, even some candidates in the writing want to buy vaccines. So um, I, I feel like the question of why the left has success in Latin America, uh, I, I feel that even if Latin America is a region that is very uh, polarized on, on, on racial, you know, like economic uh, um, and, and, and cultural lines, uh, is that, you know, like uh, the, the conception of the pueblo, which is difficult to traduce to other to other languages, and, and I suppose because of that, like people say in protests all over the world, Peru nil vencido. I think that this kind of of, of of element, it is very strong, uh, of, of of the idea of of of, of at least temporarily a, a, un, a some sort of of union to move forward to to another point. I, I think it's it's very interesting. Uh, there is a music video by, by the Chemical Brothers, uh, the, this uh, electronic uh, band from the, from the 90s, uh, British uh, electronic dance uh, music from the 90s, that, that had a music video for, for Out of Control, uh, a song they, they had. A, and, and the music video is, is uh, um, about Latin America, uh, you know, about protests in Latin America. It's, it's really interesting because even in the 90s where it was seen as the kind of, of, of neoliberal order of the end of history was happening. There was this consciousness that, that some uh, kind of, 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 of elements were still on the air in Latin America. And I feel that probably explains why, why these different left-wing movements have been able to, to, to survive for moments. Uh, and, and I feel that's something really interesting. Warren, you want to chime in? Yeah, um, I have a complicated answer to that. One is I, I'm not sure the pink wave was ever a thing, but of course that's like my general skepticism um, because it was such a it was such a a non coordinated uh, development that didn't coordinate. I mean, uh, one of the things that I've studied and like I, I've I've done detailed analysis with people from who are scholars of Chile and people who live in Chile. And, and I've talked to a lot of Chileans, for example, and they have told me that um, like the Chilean situation uh, is, is 
was exempted from the original um, uh, pink wave because it was a fairly, for Latin America, like Argentina, a fairly prosperous country, a, a, a quote, middle-income country, whatever we mean by that. Um, and because the, the repressions were so so strong and the left that the, the left in quotation marks that replaced Pinochet was so thoroughly neoliberal. Um, and this kind of uh, uh, situation is really interesting. Uh, I actually oddly blame American imperialism for this in a lot of ways, because what, what us economic policy has done is uh, been so blatant in 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 Latin America, and also been. It has not allowed Latin American states to be particularly strong outside of Brazil and uh, and parts of the Southern Cone. Um, it just doesn't allow it. So often, left wing opposition can grow more or, more organically because you know repression has been explicit as opposed to implicit and subtle like it is in other places. And because the state isn't really strong enough to oppose it, despite often being ran by military juntas. Um, uh, and, and I think the last thing we need to, we need to like be completely honest about Latin America is very similar to Africa in one sense, is that it was not allowed to join the global order until really late. So there are nation-building pro projects done by conservative and neoliberal actors that still get indigenous pushback in a very real and organic sense. Um, I mean, and if we want to talk about like the Central American cartel wars, there's a way in which that is a backdoor genocide of indigenous peoples in Central America. And that, of course, leads to pushback. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with people who come from Nicaragua and El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, Guatemala uh, here in the United States. And you know, when they find out I'm, I'm a gringo who knows a little bit about it, um, we talk about their hometown and their hometown doesn't exist anymore. Like it's gone. It has been erased from the map. And uh, in South America, they see that shit happening in Central America. It's much more alive to them than it even is to us um, who, you know, barely care that we're perpetuating it. And when we do, uh, I mean, you know, I always point out, like, if you're an American trying to help out these communities, they'll kill you, too. It doesn't protect you down there. Um, I can list names if you want me to. But it it's it's a thing that I think empowers empowers the the Latin American left in a way that you don't see in the more developed world. But it also keeps on leading to these cul-de-sacs because what can what can these governments hook up to that you know uh, despite what certain leftist economists will try to tell you they they can't not purchase things on the open market so they have to peg their currency to the dollar. They have to sell their stuff to get investment capital no matter what. They're usually limited by single currencies and there's regional national, uh, national distrust that go all the way back to their bourgeois revolutions that, that aren't easily overcomable. I mean, one of the things that I was talking about in Chile is the hostility towards like 
um, Colombians and Venezuelans actually came from both sides of the political discourse. So, like, while there's a call for left, for like broad South American left unity and broad South American left coordination, there is still regional nationalisms that get in the way of that. Like, like, uh, like for example, you know, Lula's got to convince a lot of players uh, to form a currency block, not just with BRICS. And BRICS is BRICS is complicated by India-China relations in a way that makes it very hard to pull off, but also within Latin America itself. But that's really hard to do. And that's the kind of thing the U.S. is actually afraid of because very few attempts to really hurt U.S. currency have worked, including what most leftists predicted would destroy it in the last year. They've been wrong every time. And, you know, it's it's been quite frustrating for me who 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 lived internationally and follows this stuff internationally and reads outside of U.S. newspapers to see left wing figures come and endorse things that like if you read local stuff and know anything about economics, um, you're like, that's not going to work. Why are you selling this to Americans when we should be figuring out ways to con it, if we could concretely help? And a lot of times I think the best thing an American can do is stay the fuck out of it. But, but in so much that we could concretely help like there, you know, like we could be con like the DSA could be doing things that was like trying to shift uh, Latin American policy, uh, you know, even as a think tank group to give it more independence and and start like uh, weaning North America from that. So, so despite the fact they might cheerlead for certain leftists in elections, they, they have never really come up with anything to suggest. Now, we all know they wouldn't achieve it, but they haven't even come up with a framework for that. So the pink wave is kind of the way the Americans talk about it, I think, is a way to negate our own responsibility in the situation. So we'd be like, oh, it's a pink wave. Well, at least Latin America, there's a left. And, you know, we can we can kind of ride their tide. And it, it to me is very similar to like the, the entire 20th century where most of the white U.S. left was like trying to ride the Euro communism tide or the social democratic tide or whatever and not deal with itself. Um and, you know, I think principled anti-imperialism is, is, is very important, but I also think people have to realize what they don't have control over. Um, and the one thing that I can tell you, you have the least democratic control over is military policy in the Americas. You just don't. Um, I, you know, I've been protesting the School of the Americas since I was like 17 years old. Um, not a damn thing has happened to that. And people have like set themselves on fire to protest that and been shot and been arrested it, it doesn't matter like you know i so well vaughn you know that one of the critiques that the uh democratic socialists uh types uh leverage against the uh marxist leninist types is that their anti-imperialism is really third world cultural fetishism to mask their inability to come up with a domestic political project in the imperialist core that they may reside in. In other words, it's, it's, it's political escapism. I'm not necessarily convinced of that, but I'm sure you've heard those arguments before. I, I think I would, I would say it's going to depend specifically on the person, um, honestly. And I do think it's one of those things where I'm like, there's a, there is a grain of truth to that, but I wouldn't accuse everybody of that. I mean, there's a lot of people who come into you know, I, 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 you and I have talked about like, 
Um, I have my criticisms of historical Marxist-Leninism, but I can tell you, for example, there, there's a reason why, say, the Haitian community are, are the American Black tradition, since it tends to be more Marxist-Leninist uh, Marxist sympathetic, even when they deviate from formal stances of the Soviet Union or from the official Marxist-Leninist parties in, in North America. Um, the... Uh, Latin America is a, a little bit stranger because unlike a lot of places that do have strong ML traditions, there's also a very strong Trotskyist tradition in Latin America, but it's not related to the UK-US Trotskyist position. It like went off and did its own thing and, and in many ways has positions that mirror uh, certain Marxist-Leninist organizations here. Um, I think, you know... I think, you know, like I said, I think there's a grain of truth to the social democratic critique, but then, you know, anybody can go right back at them and say, but you haven't come up with a viable domestic policy either, and you have no international policy except, you know, maybe we'll go send the most Marxist-Leninist friendly of us to go monitor elections in, in Venezuela, and they get a cool trip out of that. Or maybe we'll send someone to the Sao Paulo group as a non-voting actor, since we aren't a party anyway. And, and it just seems like no matter what you're doing, you're messing in a political context that you probably don't understand. Like, like one thing I, I will say, Pascal, that, that maybe confuses people about, because a lot of people think I'm a Trotskyist, which is kind of funny, <laughs> but um, uh, that... Um, that I, I talk about is like in some of these areas, these political traditions are, have been, they've been suppressed so much that they've kind of developed in independent ways that you can't even really use their American analogs as a guideline for what they are. Like, um, like, you know, any, any dipshit who picks up the name shining path in America, I'm going to discount. Now, I'm not a Shining Path fan for, for reasons that I could go into, but they are a serious political movement that needs to be seriously studied on their own account. And also, they are different from other forms of Maoism that have existed, right? Like, there are specific differences. For example, one of the re reasons that they, they had trouble in indigenous areas is they'd often send young women in and start, like, taking really aggressive cultural revolution lines about um the patriarchy and like when mao did that in rural china they they did not do it as abrasively and quickly and and they did not also immediately threaten um traditional peasant leadership they had a very stepped way of handling that and integrating those people in now that requires a very detailed knowledge of the history of different regions. And like, there's only one American scholar that I know that has even ever talked about this, who, you know, who is friendly to Maoism and it's, it's, it's uh, Matt Rothwell, but that's, that's literally it. These kinds of things are really important and the American discourse just can't make room for them. And I, I, you know, I'm going to say something that maybe I'm, I'm going to challenge your audience because I challenge mine. Um, Part of why it doesn't make room for them is even the people who know this stuff, when they when they when they make I don't know I, 
uh, I, I used to have Camilla on to do videos all the time, and no one watched them. <laughs> um, uh, you know, maybe I was a bad advertising. I was also smaller then. But I, I've noticed that when we try to actually go into the detail and teach people the complications of these histories, instead of like this like gotcha game between you know some Marxist Leninist sect and whatever weirdo in the DSA, um, you know who I think might as well be boffer fighting each other, like they, they neither one of them have any real political in, influence whatsoever, even within um, the quote left in America, you know, the suggestions of the democratic party, uh, the, no matter what they might tell themselves to go to sleep at night, um, that, that, uh, that the actual reality of the complexity of these historical movements and the complexity of something like, you know, the history of Marxist Leninism in the USSR, uh, is, is something that you're not even going to grasp without reading a ton and reading stuff that's not always easily available, even to the average Marxist-Leninist sectarian. I mean, um, it's, it's hard to do. And I don't think everybody needs to be a scholar. Like, that's not, you know, that's like my gig. That's not everybody else's. Um, and I don't believe that, that you know, if, if you was like, oh, that's too much fucking book learning, man. I can't do that. That's totally fucking fine. But then, like, kind of outsource that and listen to the people who you've empowered to do that. And if they betray you, don't listen to them anymore. Like, because you do have to, like, go to multiple sources and check. I mean, I'm I'm with you on that, Varn. Uh, people tell us we don't do enough foreign policy. And Tuesday, we ran a show on Turkish elections. And there were 30 people watching. And I changed the title in the middle of the show to forcing the vote in Turkey. And the view count skyrocketed. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of this stuff is is uh, can, can only be compelling when we make it look like your own narcissistic shit. Mm. Like, um, and that's that, you know, that that bugs me because, like, I, I actually don't think there's an analogy to forced to vote and not everything looks like the united states um i mean weirdly europe increasingly does right now as it you know, but 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 everywhere else it's not really true and latin america is a place where it really actually doesn't look like the u.s uh it, it, for a variety of reasons um but also like our political histories you know people encounter they join some group they encountered these readings online um, most of the founders of these groups that had actual historical, you know, ties to these actual movements are dead. Like it, it, it's a ghost of a ghost of a thing. Um, and and I've spent I've spent way too much of my life studying that shit and realizing that like it goes nowhere. I mean, one of the things that I like to point out, Pascal, is I've mapped like the positions of Trotskyist organizations and Marxist-Leninist organizations, and like mapped what positions they actually took. And I would be like, okay, so this group on this side actually agrees with this group on this side more than they agree with this group on their own side um but because they're they're they want to reenact a particular part of the cold war they don't even notice that well i mean um, great i mean I've, I've said to jason i think i said on the show i think to be a sectarian in the 21st century left in the West is absurd. 
It's a no one gives a damn about this crap. It's alienating to people who are not familiar with the discourse, and quite frankly, all it does is create up battles where we, we're regurgitating arguments that are 65, 75 years old. Yeah, often about states that don't exist anymore. Well, like. yeah, yeah, I'm tired of the USSR talk, but that gets into my part two. Well, part one of the piece hasn't hit yet, but uh, part two of the piece that I'm that I'm writing, which is uh, is the contemporary American left more of a lifestyle brand than it is an actual movement. I, I, I Camilo, like, I see you smirk, so I, I know you have an opinion. Yeah, you, you go can, ahead, Camilo. I'm yeah, yeah, I, I saw that smirk. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Like, for example, like there are going to be elections in Argentina. Like, is the USA going to endorse like the Peronists? <laughs> because <laughs> like, this is the, the most clear case of a of a coalition that that its its core is not uh, obviously the left. Even in in in, in Peru Libre, you you had uh, an element who, who more than populist, like is left, even if very heterodox, but. In in Peronism, you see a lot of people that supported Menem, like literally <laughs> uh, in the '90s. You know, supported you know the uh, a liberalization of the economy that was very radical, but also you know siding with the uh, with the U.S. and foreign policy. And curiously enough, like uh, uh, when when Argentina was going to be in the Security Council of, of the United Nations, even uh, Cuba supported uh, putting them because. Uh, um, I suppose Latin American solidarity, which it, it was curious because Argentina at that time was going to give uncritical support to to to, to NATO. Um, I think it is interesting uh, a lot of the of how this this uh, these ideas have have been, been put it because well I think in some ways trying to make analogies uh, it, it it kind of. At a, at a at the beginning level, tries to to give sense to things that are not familiar to, for someone. I I feel in the long term, like kind of distort of things because, like, obviously, as, as what Barr had said, like the comparisons between the U.S. and 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 and, and Peru don't really hold up. And and one of the elements that I I think is really key in this kind of of, of attempts to 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 make comparisons is that the the Elements within the um, within the even within the rural left, I, I will say probably the most social liberal elements of all the Peruvian left are in the rural left, and and I feel that's sometimes really weird to understand because at the same time, like the more um, uh, there are a lot of very rural elements who are very conservative. But because of living in rural areas, they also understand, for example, like, you know, like uh, gay or homosexual or different forms of transsexuality and, and are different, like maybe not the same terms, but obviously they exist, uh, in particular in the Amazon, but also in other parts of, of Peru. And because of that, some people that, you know, might even have a very, you know, like kind of... Uh, hard rhetoric about other issues uh, on, on social issues will be uh, extrangely uh, more progressive than progressives, which will sound strange. Uh, no, I get but, what you're saying. 
but it, it is because of this kind of divisions like uh, th like it's true that there is kind of a, an element within the within the within the left that has been even closer to 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 to, to the catholic church and or even to evangelical churches and that you know because of that obviously it had much more moderate position on social issues but this other kind of left that you know has been much more in contact with the populations in itself has had a, a much more radical perspective which I feel like it's it's that kind of particularities that make um, the, the the coalition seem so strange. I, I think in America, there's a good lesson to learn from that, Camillo, because one thing I'll say is we on like if you were to look at the progressive and social democratic left and look at their leadership, you would think it was the most of color. Uh, political grouping in the United States. And I have never found a study that didn't indicate it was the whitest. And, and that's because I, I feel like we don't listen to um, the quote organic section of the communities. We listen to community leaders, i.e. elites and leadership classes and, you know, the kind of sub racial bourgeoisie. That's who we listen to. And um, and we being the broad, you know, American left, including the part of the middle left of the Democratic Party that shows up in pupils. But if you actually go and talk to people um, there, you know, even in rural people here in the state, like I always point out that when you meet bigots, like real hard bigots and, you know, Trust me, rural people can be scary. They, they like carry guns. real clan member ass people, yeah. or just somebody yeah. that says an off color. No, like like real clan member ass people are like January sixers and yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. meeting ex-urban people in purple states who have gone fucking nuts. Uh, I, I think Jason, you can speak to this because you've had to date with people <coughs> in Orange County. Like, yeah. like you know what it's you know what I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> like if you've ever met a California conservative. Mm -hmm. in in uh, gun country of california mm -hmm. it, they are far fucking crazier than somebody in, in like south. in the south west virginia yeah in, in west virginia or whatever north uh, yes. right which is not to say that everyone in that that class is like is whatever woke means but it is to say that they often do have a live and let live ideology that if you would let them you know speak for themselves but they're not really represented as anything more than caricature in in right-wing politics either i mean they always find their bosses who drive big trucks that cost you know three hundred thousand dollars and have 250 dollars boots on to represent them <coughs> and uh are you know people talk I, I, about how george bush speaks for the common man which was well, let me like, ask you this let me ask everybody on the screen this and, and i don't know if camilo can really and I, I'm asking this to you as well, Tucson. I'd love to get your opinion on this as well. Is it because if you live in a major metropolitan area, like you're saying, these purple regions, i.e. Orange County, actually what I'm finding more so San Diego County, um, which surprised the hell out of me, is it because you're actually adjacent to different ethnic groups so the propaganda works a little better? So, for example, when... There's been a handful of times, a very small handful of times in my life that I can actually remember I was frightened because I was black. Um, not too many people are actually going to confront that level of, of real racism. 
Like, I have a, a firearm. I will kill you. You're from the South, Derek. I'm sure you know about Coleman, Alabama. Um, yep. There's places not too far from from Atlanta um, that are Cummings like, used you know, to be a sundown town, even though it's got a black mayor now. It was a sundown yeah. town until the fucking 90s. They like, wouldn't let us drive through it. They would people be like, oh, to make sure you don't go that state route because that's going to take you to Coleman. Um, there's definitely places where people like don't don't go there. There's such a disconnect from the thing that you're allegedly mad at. It's not very close, especially when you talk about the militia people up north in like Montana, um, northern Idaho. There's just no no ethnicity there. It's just white people. Um, those those places can be mildly frightening, but. Um, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho can't be mildly frightening because Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, it can be full you, of Aryan Nation people. But you, you literally see people feeling very like I was. I'll I'll never forget this. I was in Walla Walla. We played a show in Walla Walla, Washington, in 2016. I don't know why this is so vivid in my mind. And the the next day, the promoters were like, "We're gonna." It was a good show. They're like, "We'll take you out to breakfast." And the promoters took us out to breakfast in a you know cool little breakfast spot in Walla Walla. Can't remember the name, and. There was a dude just openly wearing a clan shirt. And it said something about killing N-words on it. And I was like, you're just wearing this in a family restaurant. And you're and it's like not a problem. And I looked over and I told the promoters, I was like, is this like normal? And they just kind of shrugged their shoulders, like, man, you know, this is where you are. Um, but that person didn't, you know, even look our way and we definitely were the only people of color in the in the spot but uh there is something to be said about the the level of insanity a lot of the protests that people see on the news about anti-masking a lot of that stuff was coming from orange county yeah so do you guys think it has something to do with the vicinity of the minority groups in these in these regions there's a sweet spot of reaction and then i'll let, let camille talk mm -hmm. but from my experience is you need to be isolated enough from it that you don't work with people of color enough to be not alienated from them but not in a white enough area that you never see them that's the perfect like breeding ground for that paranoia to kick in um, and in the South, because of the legacy of Jim Crow, that was very possible because like communities live literally on top of each other, but do not interact that much. And the people who do interact tend to be truly speaking, working class are lower. And mm -hmm. so um, and, and this is, you know, there are pupils that back this up, like working class people. Yes, they are bigoted. Yes, they are racist, uh, but they're actually much less so the middle and upper middle class people, even people who claim who like speak Robin DiAngelo talk, but like <laughs> are afraid to come to my side of Salt Lake because I live in a part of the city that's mostly brown, which objectively, by the way, I'll kind of every crime stat I've ever seen is actually safer than the white neighborhood uh, near downtown um, because we get stole from, from homeless people less. And that's also because of our shitty homeless policy here uh, actually forced uh, all the homeless people out of 
the upper class part of town where there was, which is downtown, because you know how these cities get donuts and downtown got valuable. They pushed it out into both suburbs. Well, one of those suburbs is white. So that, you know, created all kinds of havoc. Whereas the local, I don't know what it is, but like, like we just have, uh, maybe our stuff is less cool. I don't know. But we have, we have less issues. We have just as many homeless people. We have less issues with, with homeless people interacting in a way that is likely to lead to a violent altercation. So our stuff is down. Now there are parts of town where there are you know, drug gangs and stuff. That's real, but it's, it's, it's just as safe as the other part of town. And yet the people who will lecture their students on Robin D'Angelo, and I'm not making this up this, they don't do it anymore because the political climate here has changed so much that you can't do that, but they used to, are the same people who wouldn't come to my neighborhood on the quote bad side of Salt Lake. There is no bad side of Salt Lake. Like, nah, your neighborhood is sketchy, dude. Look, dude, Salt Lake City. <laughs> it's sketchy because I'm there. Like Salt Lake City, <laughs> you guys stole all of our, our hats in 2015. We printed hats up and they all got stolen in Salt Lake. So if you see anybody wearing a pentagram hat with a geisha in it, you punch that guy in the face and say that's for you taking ten dollars oh, out of Jason's pocket. I have a I was like, I have a, a, a this is revolution hat. I didn't steal it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Don't punch me, Jason. <laughs> punch that motherfucker right in the head. It's a whole box. Uh Pascal, do you have an opinion on this? No, as I mean, a New I Yorker. I think I, about I, Long Island. You know, it's really interesting, right? Because I, as a, someone who grew up in New York, I found that the cosmopolitan white ethnic who was proximate to people of color to be some of the most racist reactionary people I had ever seen. And this is just my opinion. I don't have any documented evidence. I've lived in, in the South. I've lived in the Northeast. What I find is that in Southern areas or in places like in this in southern adjacent areas like Missouri and so on and so forth, the racism is visceral. But there are rules of operation because the communities have had a history with each other, so they know how to navigate those dynamics. The problem I find with reactionary white ethnics in urban cities is that the violence, brutality, and racism doesn't necessarily have a scientific basis. So just some off the like something like a Yusef Hawkins or something mm. like what happens to Bernard Getz, just mm. off the cuff can happen. Where I think in those southern and other areas, the, the racism would be violent and true, but those kind of just like just off the cuff kind of existence of uh, occurrences wouldn't happen as happen as much. I mean, there's places like I remember we had a tour manager once, and. Uh, we had booked, he had booked this tour and we were going through Texas. Right. And, um, he, and he was from Texas. He goes, I need you to do me one favor as you're driving through Texas, make sure you get gas in Beaumont because I can't have you stop in Vider. If you stop in Vider, there's a good chance, you know, something bad is going to happen to you. And he's just talking about getting gas. 
Think about this. Remember when Martin Luther King went to Cicero in the suburbs of, of Illinois, suburbs mm -hmm. of Chicago? Mm -hmm. One of the statements that he made is that I've been all over the South. I have never seen anything like what I've seen in terms of the racism in Cicero, Illinois. And I, I remember when reading that statement, I was like, this is incredible. This is a guy who marched in Alabama, Birmingham, Mississippi. And he's like, the thing that he found the most is off the meat racks was Cicero, Illinois. Well, they were wearing Nazi paraphernalia in like 1964. Well. I like to talk about when I lived in Pennsylvania and go visit my mom in Ohio, and I saw more Confederate flags there than oh. in Georgia in 2003 yeah. and four. Um, and I would literally be like, well, what's your fucking excuse? Because at least like the people where I'm from, like hide why they're doing this. And we'll say it's like heritage or some stupid bullshit, but like, you can't even do that. Like, and, and you feel okay with that. Um, and, and I was, I was shocked. And I was also shocked by what even white liberals who considered themselves anti-racist. My school had a lot of people from Michigan, Ohio, and, and Pennsylvania in it when I went to the school in the South, um, because, you know, they were diversifying regionally, i.e. getting more money from upper middle-class neighborhoods that were in the Rust Belt. Um, uh, that um, that they would just say shit sometimes and I'd be like, why do you think that's okay? Like, even this, like, like even I, I know people who are explicit and, and outright political racist who would not actually say the dumb shit you just said. Like, but, you know, that was a, that when I lived up there, I got it because I'm like, oh, okay, there's only, there really is only people like, people of color at all in the cities and they treat those cities like they're like wastelands mm -hmm. and uh, particularly mm -hmm. in like Michigan mm -hmm. um, where like there's like Detroit which is like ethnic and or black and there's all kinds of ethnic tensions etc but you know and then there's like you go to Lansing and I'm like I'm uncomfortable because this is the whitest place I've ever been and I'm a little too dark. Like, you know, and I'm like, wait, I, I'm literally like, there's only like three people with brown hair here. Like, fuck, I'm in trouble. They're gonna think I'm Mexican. Like, um, and, and yeah, um, uh, the same, actually the same happens here in Utah too, uh, in the areas immediately, like the most reactionary place I think in Utah is Provo is, is Provo Valley can, uh, county which is where all the white people ran to uh well i should there's also a religious element to this that makes it a little bit more complicated but um all the 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 extremophile lds ran to one place and then a lot of the white people followed them and then like here it's like super rich white liberals and then polynesians and latins like and that's who lives here um and so you go in those places out in Provo County, which is urban. It's not rural. It's it's an urban area. Um, it's part of this great concentrated urban mess. But I don't always feel safe there. Like, um, because I even though I, I am pale as all get out, I look like an outsider. Like, I because like everybody here, they're not just white. They're all from like three families um, that came over from New York. With, with like the Mormon immigrations and that's who's there 
Oh, like, dude, if you're in the wrong, if you're in the wrong like white place, and they think you're a, a white ethnic. When I was in North Dakota, we had this head chef that uh, was from the Boston or Connecticut. I can't remember, and he was Italian, but had a large nose. And he was also a bit of an alcoholic and was very upset. So when you work in, in the, those environments, you work in shifts where you live on site for so many, so many weeks a month. And we were working six weeks on, you got two weeks off, and you have to leave the facility for your two weeks off. And so the dude was kind of upset because he was pretty much homeless um, when he got the job, as was many people that worked in North Dakota. And he... Um, he just took a train to the next town over, which was Haver, Montana. Um, and I'm sure there's not too many people watching the show that are from there or have been there. And um, the rest of us in the kitchen, for the most part, were black. And so these two other black dudes used to, they didn't have kids or wives. So they used to be like, well, if that, if that place is dope, chef, let us know. Cause we'll fucking spend our two weeks there and save some money. And the chef came back kind of shell-shocked, and he made sure we didn't go there. He was like, look. <laughs> he said he was sitting in a restaurant. <laughs> and he said they all of a sudden started talking about the Jews that were invading the neighborhood. Invading. And he didn't know, because he's not Jewish, so his whole thing was like, oh, where are these Jews? <laughs> oh. I, I think Pascal, you're right on white ethnics, though, because I do feel like the right, the, the quote white ethnic, particularly in the 20th century, was offered a choice. Like mm. we could, and I, I now I'm going to sound like a, a critical race theorist or something, but like you could either embrace the fact that you were probably distantly related to people of color, uh, um, uh, particularly in my community, because that was like the rumor about me. I mean, the like me being called Sean King goes back to people thinking I was mixed all the way to when I was a child. Um, and um, like white passing mixed. But for normies, I always describe like I have a lot of problems with uh, um, crackers. Okay. No, of course, Niggers? but no. Uh, uh, um, the uh, on his feet, this guy um, <laughs> made the white Klansman. What's his name? Um, David Duke. Duke. No, not not the white Klansman. I mean, the black Klansman. Um, the black. Klansman. Oh yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm still okay. Well, yeah. Spike Lee. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, Spike Lee, Spike. No, but I, I, I actually do think "Do the Right Thing," which is a kind of shitty movie in a lot of ways, um, does actually understand. I think Spike Lee probably understands white ethnics better than he understands the black community. God, because damn. The, 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 the the way uh, the I mean, I probably shouldn't say that I'm not black, but but I, I just that's the intuition funny. I've gotten from people talking about it. Because the the way he describes that that Italian family is pretty fucking accurate. Like like one side wants to dip in and be pump, become part of the 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 black community and really can't, and then the other side's going to double down on every racist thing to prove that they are you know a good white ethnic or a good white. And that logic really is a thing that I think even still kind of plays now 
particularly if you're not in upper middle class circles where everyone pretends not to have the racial biases that they clearly have or when they are but then they also flagellate themselves for having them i guess so they can keep them i don't know what that's about Mm -hmm. but um you know i think do the right thing actually is really accurate about that i i I always feel less i feel less good when uh i also feel like summer of sam is actually really good on that too Uh... that does yeah. this make you feel better, Derek Farn? Mooling John basketball. <laughs> oh, oh! Clearly, we won't, we won't be monetizing this video. <laughs> no, we won't. Look, it's a dolly shot. It's a dolly shot. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think that's. I think that 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 part of that movie felt real to me as a person who grew up in like a. Uh, who who spent the first half of my life in a mostly black neighborhood and then was was suburbanized uh, into the poor suburbs, the transitional suburbs, but suburbanized later. So, Tucson, would you like to add something uh, to this? You uh, fried chicken eating, patty eating, (laughs) Haitian. Moulin and Mooly sounds so funny. But then when you find out what the translation is, it's like, ouch. What is the translation? It's charcoal. It's charcoal. Charcoal. Are you sure? Yeah. When Eddie Murphy in Raw does the Italian guy watching Rocky, Mm -hmm. is anything funnier than that? I'm about 5'1". That black guy over there is about (laughs) 6'7". 6'7". 613. <laughs> what does he say? Hey, yo, I have some juju bees and some bonbons, and the uh, nigga is going to pay for it. According to the Urban Dictionary, the Italian for eggplants. You read an Urban Dictionary? I always learned it was for eggplants. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the. I think the I've co- seen it translated as. Yeah. Great. I mean, eggplants are like what? Blue, black? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Now I have uh, a theory. Now that a lot of the things you were saying, <laughs> when when Pedro Castillo was elected, you know, like a lot of people thought that the racial backlash was going to start, uh, and it kind of did. But to some degree, I will say that in in a curious way, even the youth that uh, I, I felt particularly in in Lima. But even to some degree, like the youth that is well off in in, in, in the regions of Peru, um, kind of had a different stance than than, than I guess those who, who studied in, in uh, you know from elementary to school to high school in the in the nineties or the or the two thousands because in an strange way, kind of the, there was some sort of multicultural talk. Which was uh, was not just in the school, but you know, on the media, like the idea of, of United Colors Benetton, we are we are all um, together, and and you know, like uh, you know, like uh, emo was was big, and it was kind of a trans uh, uh, class uh, <laughs> collaboration in some way, like it, it was <laughs> strange uh, as strange as it was, and not just in Peru and Latin America. So it was it was kind of a there was points of encounter, but kind of the, in the end of the flip sides in some way, like uh, when in the, basically in the, 
in the end of the the old and the, the, the you know the early of 2010s well there was kind of a a, a different talk on, on gender issues uh, you know like both of feminism and 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 gay rights become much more common like the talk about like uh, racial tolerance or you know kind of pluralism kind of banish in, in in a way so it is a very kind of of strange issue which probably explains why some of the rhetoric has been in particular in the, the far right sectors in 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 Peru and Twitter has been very radical, much more than than I, I will expect it, because like the the in, in a way there has been a radicalization on, on some issues. So I don't think even without uh, without uh, uh, the election of Pedro Castillo, this hasn't hadn't been you know an element that kind of. Uh, of a you know from a kind of end of history in some way like multicultural narrative of the 90s that to some degree left on to the to the 2000s and then in 2010 you know like this kind of started vanishing and we are already seeing what what is going on Tucson I'm just reading the comments about um, eggplants, sorry. Wow. Get your mind out of the gutter, okay? <laughs> Just reading. <laughs> because I might have been wrong. Wouldn't eggplant imply black on the outside, white on the inside? It would, Ooh. but hey. No, I think it's yeah, just, I just really oh. want to twist that knife. So just just I, just I actually don't know the context of the Italian. So it's just the color, like, you, you, you're dark is what they're dark, saying. Dark, yeah. It's yeah. like calling some of Morano in Spanish, right? Right, which is basically the same thing. Moreno. Mm, Moreno. I feel like, the, I feel like Muli hits a little harder. Well, you know, yeah. But see, I think this is correct. Melanzana is Italian for eggplant, but the Sicilian dialect is Mulizan or something like that. Or some that's, shit. They wrote, yeah, that's what you. or some thank you, Caleb. <laughs> We're not going to monetize it. Okay, so Luna says it's solely a reference to skin color. It doesn't mean it's not like calling someone an Oreo or a zebra. Okay, got it. Or, or, or uh, a Negro, you said? Or a Oreo. 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 Okay. Oh, <laughs> hey, hey, calm down there, pronunciation man. All the words. All you got words. all fired up and got real southern. Like, well, wait, a, wait a second here. The, where I grew up, I know my racisms. <laughs> I know about racism yeah. and I know about grits. <laughs> I do know about grits. What you talking you don't about? Don't put Willis? sugar in them. You don't put sugar in them. Big asses. <laughs> so you got quiet. He on got quiet. <laughs> we it's both noticed he got quiet. He's like, I'm gonna start practicing just blankly staring like Pascal through all this. <laughs> don't joke about the guy. Go for some grits right now. Grits are yeah. pretty tasty right now. Yeah, it's real. To a cooking show. <laughs> hey, anyone that puts sugar in their grits, not to be trusted. No, oh no. Gosh. That's how you know they're a fed. Or a carpet bagger, which is the same thing. <laughs> if you serve someone grits and they're like you got any sugar you'd be like for your coffee like you just <laughs> i thought sugar and grits was supposed to be like farina or like porridge or something no man sugar and grits is called a crime it's just it's... sugar on top that's what they mean they don't mean like a sweet version just forget that you even this heard ain't cream of wheat. it's not like someone goes oh i thought this was cream right of wheat. 
I'm sorry, this is the wrong thing. This is gross. Can you get me some more grits because I've defiled these ones you've given me? I see. That's different. Yeah, sugar Someone grits is foul. sugar on their grits is a fake. <laughs> I best believe they're they're gonna tell you how to make a pipe bomb. <laughs> wow. like, like that person. <laughs> Don't you think you should make a pipe bomb? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it'd be real cool if we just blew up a bunch of old white people. Why not? We're not getting monetized at all. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no. Not Jason's going through his Khalid Muhammad phase. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the white man. Fuck the white man's mama. <laughs> and Kanye was right. Wait a minute. No. <laughs> I'm glad my channel's not monetized. <laughs> hey, hey, if this is a live show, if this is a live show, Pascal would have Sandman from the Apollo come take me out. Oh my gosh, <laughs> with the hook. Velveeta and <laughs> got that old Negro. Like I don't know about cheese grits are not bad, but it doesn't have to be Velveeta cheese. Velveeta oh. is a special, special substance. Velveeta cheese in your cheese grits is adjacent to me to sugar in the grits. Mm. Shrimpy grits is very good as well. Sherman? Shrimp, shrimp and grits. Oh, okay, okay. You better enunciate. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, shrimp grits is, a, is an old classic. Shrimp and grits. You can do a lot of stuff with grits. You just can't put sugar in them. Well noted. Well noted. I don't think yeah. have you ever had grits? Yes, I've had all all manner of all manner of grits. Grit, grit type porridge <laughs> things. Son eats grits like Joe Pesci and Lethal Weapon 2. What exactly <laughs> is a grit? Was it my cousin Vinny? What is a grit? What is, what is it? <laughs> one grit. How much for one grit? Put it in the hand. Uh, Luna, Luna, Luna Diana's got props. Said grits are just horrible. However, you season them. What? Luna, I will make you very delicious grits. Come to Mexico, Luna. You, I will grit the shit out of you. Perma grits are awesome. And Rich, a little bit of pepper, some hot sauce. Not bad. See, no sugar. No sugar. Yeah, uh, yeah. I went to a Peruvian restaurant and we had hominy, which apparently are something close to hominy um, recently. So grits are, are apparently worldwide, just they're not a North thing. Worldwide, y'all. Always... No, <laughs> we have they're not. Well, you know, so Derek, so I told you when I went to the South, I didn't know white people ate grits. You know? So uh, here's the thing. I have discovered that Southern food is automatically assumed to be black food. Like mm, I remember food. I remember people talking about like watermelon and fried chicken and me and, like when I was growing up, I was little. I didn't realize that was a racist thing because like we all ate watermelon and fried chicken. That's what we did. Like it's like, yeah, that's like South. I, I know you it. did. Yeah, I <laughs> Big Mama, can we have some more watermelon and fried chicken? <laughs> yes, baby. You go on in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't eat chitlins as a kid, so at least. <laughs> well, you know th that's a test. Do you know Southern Black culture? Because do you know what chitlins are? Um... Big intestines. But but yep, Derek, yeah. like seriously, when you live when you live in a place like especially the Bay Area, anything that has like collard greens on it is like let's go to this soul food restaurant so when i went to the south they were like you have to make grits i was like but there's no black people on here and they looked at me funny like uh you're gonna make grits and i was like there's no way that they're gonna eat them so i made them and i'll never forget i'll never fucking forget this i sat there and watched because i was like amazed and then I worked, so I worked a, a whole year. So I was there during the summer and they were like, hey, man, we need you to cut this watermelon real quick before you leave. And I was like, for who? And they're like, for the motherfuckers. I was like, really? And so I cut the watermelon and I like presented the shit out of it. And I just sat there and I was like, I've never seen white people destroy a watermelon like this. They didn't cut it all cute. They didn't put it in fucking drinks. They destroy. No, that's that how you're shit. supposed to eat it. You're just supposed to like cut it in half and devour it. Like devour like, it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was literally, literally the most amazing thing uh I'd ever seen. You want to address the super chat, Tucson, before we sign up? Sure. We got a super chat from Nata Conley. Answer Camilo's comment, please don't skirt the issue. Please, how the push for women's rights and LGBT rights made it easier to abandon the multicultural agenda in Peru. All right, I that's the show, everybody. Have a good night. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it, it, it was kind of used to, to abandon com completely the issue. But I think, you know, like even a, a, a narrative within the within the more left-wing feminists is that kind of the liberal feminists at least don't care about about you know like uh, you know like uh, racial issues uh, much so um i i feel that it has been conflictive like some elements within the like uh, some more liberal feminists have been quite silent but i i will say you know like from the progressive to the left i think you know like i feel i have kind of been relatively united to some degree um on 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 the issues of 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 uh, of, uh, of of movement to 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 kind of you know like fight like uh, inequalities in you know from a kind of broad perspective, but I do feel that this kind of of of, of, of multicultural agenda in some way like it, it was more in, even in the air in some ways in, in the nineties and the early. 2000. So it was not something, uh, you know, even government was not necessarily the one promoting it, but it was kind of uh, something like, you know, like kind of the, the, the idea of, 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 the, of the national pride and things like that. But in, 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 with, with kind of economic growth, like a lot of the, the divisions uh, between those who had resources and those who hadn't, um, Become much bigger, so so that kind of led to to uh, to the to this kind of of, of, of division. I, I do feel it's difficult for for the for the left to try to 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 come up because like organizations like Peru Libre, you know, have a some sort of a multicultural 
push, you know, like they, they talk against racism, but they don't talk about like, uh, you know, like uh, the, you know, abortion or, or the recognition of the trans identity. So it is, it is, uh, it is issues that, uh, that are, you know, like uh, are, have been relevated by, by some left, but at the same time, there is a perception that some elements in the more urban left just, just care about like, uh, uh you know like women's rights and lgbtq rights and you know don't care about like fighting racism so there there is this kind of accusation i think that to some degree is much more real against the peru libre which has shown uh, a lot of of of, of sexist and homophobic positions but i i do feel the the some elements of the more reformist left do do kind of try to 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 took like the whole uh, elements within the discussion. Uh, what I feel that that's a, an issue for another debate. Like to what degree they are willing to compromise on economic issues because that's also a topic that has been. Uh, but as we have seen, even like the quote unquote more radical left has been willing to compromise on, on economic issues to just being in office. So um, I, I I think that that that. The more reformist left so far has shown to be much more um, willing to to fight for those issues than than the than the you know like more populist elements of, of the left. So in that way, I, I I will say that that you know like it is a kind of complex issue because like the the organizations are weak and and it's going to be very difficult. Um, you know, like to to unite the topics, and, 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 and but I, I do think it still is possible. What do you have to say about that, Tucson? Um, that sounds like a very thorough answer. Wow! And I did wonder about that too. So, <clears throat> I mean, we're living at a time where we have Putin talking about wokeness. And it's like. <laughs> How did this word get all the way over there <laughs> to Russia? And now he's saying it too. It's crazy. But there is an element more that is the 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 most ex curious part. Like the you know, like the the left in Latin America like has a much more rural base, and that base not always is is necessarily uh, progressive social issues, but it's less centered around social issues than than in, in 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 the in the right because the the you know for example in in, in the u.s uh, opposition to migration is 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 a central topic uh, there is not something like uh, you know like equal even if you know some countries as Warren has mentioned like in Chile, there was even like, you know, some of the left-wing parties were not too sympathetic to immigration, even from Latin Americans. Um, but uh, the I, I do feel that the, you know, like by putting the center on, on economic issues, I do feel like they kind of uh, uh, had the possibility of moving different topics at the same time. So I... I at the same, I think that what makes complex things, particularly in the Indian region, um, is that the 
the laugh in some way, like you know, in some 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 countries, people is uh, the you know the call of the quote unquote the Brahmin left versus the merchant right or, or things like that. But in in the in the curious case in, in is that in the Andean region particularly, like uh, informal informal economy, uh, it's a uh, it has a huge chunk of the economy. Like uh, in Peru, Bolivia is considered seventy percent of the economy. So, like a lot of, uh, it is complex to taxate the informal economy, and in that sense, it's difficult to 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 change things that much. Like um, Evo Morales was able to to do a lot of things, but it, then it became a lot of of issue of rhetoric rather than than really radical reforms. Like uh, you know, like. Would you say the same thing happened or was happening in Venezuela? Because I know there was a lot of uh, reform around women's rights with the early drafts of the Bolivarian project. I think Venezuela is even weirder uh, I, 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 because, uh, uh, you know, like uh, for moments, like there was really even, even interest like of, of, of Chavez to, to kind of set up like, you know, the kind of even communes. So yeah. it was a, a, a discussion that was very radical. And, and then like, but when, you know, like uh, with time and the kind of pressure, it, it, it kind of in some way became much more conservative and even like, uh, you know, like uh, at, at this point it has a, a very conservative base in a, in a weird way. He was one of the few politicians on, on the left to, uh, you know, like uh, paying mourning to, to the queen <laughs> of the UK when she passed out. That's uh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is strange. I mean, like, the, the from from Chavez to Maduro, I think Maduro has had much more moderate positions, to say the least, in, 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 in social issues. Um, I, I think it is, it, it is very complex because... Uh, Another topic that that I think sometimes gets confused is the role of the family in Latin America, uh, and and because the families that are very central to to the kind of uh, structure of, of of Latin American society, because the in general the the states are very weak um, to to sustain a, some form of, of, of welfare, like even even Uruguay or Costa Rica. Um, like uh, have some problems like in, in kind of administer like uh, social welfare particularly outside like large cities which makes that families are very central and 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 i feel like the 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 center of the discussion you know like in, in some cases is has been tried to put as as an element of being pro-family in a progressive way like so, so it's kind of a lot of challenge that that that, that, that some countries have done, and and and, and there are very, for example, like for very different reasons, I think Boric and 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 Petro are you know like uh, progressive social issues, like, um, but for example, in Argentina, like uh, a lot of the social issues were able to pass, even if there is a, a an important part of the Peronist coalition, which is much more conservative in the sense like that there is a lot of uh, the feminist movement is much more um, in some way, like much more united and uh, not, not, not united in the in the in the full sense, but, but you know, like uh, it was 
it, it has been much more present in the debate. I, I feel like in Peru for moments, it, it, it kind of loses support uh, for, and, and it even, even if it's important, I feel that the tensions between different segments of, of the feminist movement have sometimes give the impression of less unity and that has kind of been able to, to, to weaken the, the possibilities. Um, but I feel like it is, it is becoming much more um, complex because the, obviously the attacks against trans people also have been increasing, which, and, and some trans uh, uh, minors even, they have been attacked. Jeez. So the, the issue is like now it's even parents who are kind of stepping up, even if, you know, that, that you know, like, uh, you know, like, uh, but the governments are, are very, are very afraid about like trans rights beyond like probably Argentina and, and Uruguay. Like it, it's very slim, and even in Argentina, like you know, like it's it, it, it's not completely. Um, the, there is a, a bit of more tension, and so I feel a lot of the advances in social issues are are pushes that come more from the grassroots, like. About the uh, you know like uh, abortion and gay marriage, like uh, trans rights, it, it is issues that come much more from from above than from an institutional level. Well, this sounds like it could be a topic all to itself, and uh, maybe mm -hmm. something that we will, uh, as Pascal says so eloquently, interrogate. <laughs> as I come in with my Spike Lee dolly shot, mm -hmm. we'll interrogate it. You <laughs> fried That's chicken eating. There. But I do want to say thank you guys oh so much for joining us. Uh, everything you saw over the hour, we had an hour and 40 minutes of extra content for the Saturday free show. Mm -hmm. Camilo, thank you for joining us in Peru. Um, we're going to you know keep checking back in with you to, to check on how things are working out there. This isn't a one and done episode where we're not going to want to do a follow-up so we're definitely going to be doing follow-ups with you um on, on uh, what's going on on the ground also uh for patrons we have the whole channel set up in the discord server if you have a question for us at the live show you can ask it in the discord server we will be recording the live show video and of course audio uh for the new york show so i'm excited about that so any questions you have, if you are a patron, drop it in the Discord. Uh, also, again, I will be putting up later today movie night for a change. We can actually re-watch movie night. Um, I, I've only recorded the first one because that's the one where the, most of the crew was there. Pascal was there. Toussaint was there. We had a little talk after. So um, that video should be up as well. Uh, anything else you want to add, uh, Pascal? No, not at all. Derek Varn? No, no real things to say. I think it's good to end on what Camilla said about the complicatedness of the situation. And mm -hmm. you guys can uh, find me. I feel like I'm on here a lot these days, so uh, you can find me on here again somewhere. Um, <laughs> I mean, I pitched your new show in the yeah. first paragraph of, my, of the opening. Yeah, so. you did. So uh, yeah, yeah, and you can also find me at Varnblog, and there's new shows going up there, and whatever. Like there's, I I can't even keep up, so with what I'm doing, so you know, 
just look at the channels. <laughs> a, just look, subscribe to all the channels. You'll get an alert. You're fine. Camilo, do you have any parting words? No, it, it has been great uh, talking to, to all of you. And it's, uh, I hope that I helped uh, to understand this uh, situation. And, and uh, let's hope that uh, things uh, kind of solve quickly. But uh, it's going to be very difficult. And yeah, I mean, uh, um, waiting for, for an exit to, to this crisis is, 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 uh, is what I am going to do. Well, I hope we, for a short time, took your mind off things and you got some chuckles out of it. Because when you came on the screen today, you looked very upset. <laughs> yeah, it, it has been a very, a very kind of uh, difficult time. Well, thank you guys. Uh, Toussaint, do you have anything to say in closing? Make sure you like, subscribe, sign up for Camilo's Substack. Ooh, there you go. Check Preach. out Camilo's podcast and follow him on Twitter. The, the links are in the chat. Camilo's yeah, Camilo's podcast. also always posting great articles on Twitter. A lot of these shows... <laughs> I'm just following Camilo on Twitter and I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> he just dropped another bomb. <laughs> Gotta get him on the show about this. Gotta get him on the show tonight. Yeah. And I hit him up last minute. So Camilo is the real MVP. History and Thank you guys so much. His podcast. Mm -hmm. Toussaint? Yes, man. Are you ready? We are, are. Gracias. Out.